Welcome to Macintosh, The Last of Us. I am your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer! How are you? Doing well, man. Excited to talk Last of Us, Last of Us with you. Going to talk a little Last of Us. This is episode two, Infected. We are on episode two of nine. We are one-sixth of the way through season one of the series. Spencer, before we get rolling, before I ask you what your opinion of the episode is, America wants to know. I do have... A mea culpa to our listeners and to you personally, because I brought something to the pod last week where I said, hey, let's talk Emmys. Well, guess what, Spencer? Guess what I wasn't doing? What weren't you doing? Talking Emmys. I was talking Golden Globes. So absolute mistake on my part. <laughs> we had a really cool listener uh, who, who seems like a, a, a cool guy just uh, comment on our website that we had missed that up. 100% correct. I've, My apologies I've on successfully that. Conf- I've so. successfully confused the Emmys and the Golden Globes every single available opportunity for the last 10 years. I, th- that's just how my mind works for conflating those two. But here's the thing. And I, w- I do know how frustrating it is when you're listening to a podcast and they conti- you're, who you're listening to continues to mess something up over and over again. Because we said Emmys probably 50 times in that segment. Easy. So I apologize. Sorry about that. Uh, I would say it won't happen again, but it will <laughs> no, happen again. No, totally. Um, okay, so <laughs> let's move on to episode two, Infected. Spencer America wants to know, what did you think? I like this episode quite a bit. I think this episode showed the, what kind of budget and production skill and design they're working with. The sets, the set design that they did on this and the money they spent on it. I believe fully that this is indeed the most expensive thing ever filmed in Canada. For the amount of money they're cl- making, they're putting into this to make it feel realistic. I thought it well went into two different, some very different categories of horror, with the opening being just straight-up Chernobyl-style horror, and then later being elements of body horror, almost Pan's Labyrinth kind of style of creature horror, tensions about what characters are going through. I thought all of that was well executed. I'm very much enjoying this show, and not only just as an adaptation and liking the video game, but this is just, to me, quality, well-done television. I think it's showing all the accolades of that. Before I give my opinion on episode two, I do want to say that we are co-listing this podcast on our Enjoy Your Stay podcast feed, right? So we did that with episode one. We're going to also list this episode, episode two of our coverage of Last of Us on Enjoy Your Stay. If you're listening to us through the Enjoy Your Stay podcast feed, you got to go over to Mangum Talks The Last of Us and subscribe to that. This is the last time we're going to be on that. The reason we're we're co-doing it is because toward the end of that podcast, we didn't really... We hadn't set up Mangum Talks the last episode. Yes, we didn't have anywhere to send our listeners. And so we just want to make sure everybody can follow us to the new show mm-hmm. over on Mangum Talks the last of us. I think that's it. The housekeeping. I will finally give my opinion. This episode, my opinion of the show really hasn't changed. Um, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint all of the people. I mean, you're not, you, I, doubt world you're is let down. I doubt you're listening to this show, like this podcast because you don't like the last of us. Right. So I'm sorry if, if you like the show. It's just not – it's it's the best done zombie movie show, zombie show I've ever seen. It is the it, – I can give it that. Um, but that's about like being the fastest chicken on a NASCAR track. I don't know. I don't know. I just made that. Whatever the expression is. You, you are sometimes so rural south, and that was one example of that. I don't know. I just came up with something. I don't know. Uh, the uh, – you know. The the strongest I, it, it is strongest gin in prohibition era. I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm not super crazy about the concept of the zombie movie because as I mentioned last week, I feel like the whole show is given away. I feel like every like when you kill five, six billion people, I feel like it's over. Like, am I really supposed to give a fuck that this guy and this girl like get across 
the country. Their hope is that you do. Six billion people have already died. Humanity basically is over. Civilization, civilization has collapsed. We've lost all measure of art and architecture and history in our world. It's like Alderaan has happened, and I'm supposed to be happy that Princess Leia is aboard the Death Star. It's like, well, we just lost a planet. That's and, all I'm saying. And it's a, it's an interesting kind of preference on mindset of where I think some people are drawn to the post-apocalyptic genre, particularly zombie fiction, for exactly that reason, because they want to simplify the world. They want to remove all of the outside factors, all of the added complexities, all of the history that influences the present, and reduce it down to just people in the here and now, interpersonal relationships kind of shit. And that is what this genre does hard. As you say, though, you kind of have to get over the fact that to reach that point, the world died. And what is now continuing forward is a fundamentally changed, can never go back to what it was kind of thing. Yeah, I kind of don't care. But that being said, um, I am podcast professional and I will be with you all for the nine weeks. I will get into the show. I have uh, formed opinions on characters. I've got theories, speculation. So we could do the podcast. I just, you know, when you ask me how you feeling about the show itself, The Last of Us, it's not for me. Now, I'm 100% with you that I can see how it's the most expensive show ever filmed in Canada. And by the way, most expensive show ever filmed in Canada is not like best zombie movie ever. You know, like it's not like this isn't the chicken, chicken on, the NASCAR, on race. the NASCAR track. It's not that because there's great television that's come out of Canada, right? Like yes. it's a big deal to be the most expensive show ever shot in Canada. It's a well done show. I, I cannot argue that. It's gorgeous. Like, I mean, some of these shots, they've convinced me that the world has ended. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. some of these shots are absolutely gorgeous and the acting's superb. It's good writing. I just don't give a fuck because 6 billion people died. That's the how, I, how I'm operating. And I'm just saying that they were necessary casualties to give us the compelling interpersonal father-daughter character drama that we're all here for. This is what apocalypse fiction runs on. Bleed away the rest of the world so you can focus on the individual and their immediate issues. Because for a lot of people who enjoy apocalypse fiction, the world is too much upon them and it is a necessary casualty to get away from it and feel free. Traumatic as that is actually when you think about it. Yeah, I just think it's kind of telling that people who really love the genre, it's like they're able to very quickly dismiss death at that scale, I guess, in service of a smaller story. That is Um, exactly reason and focus, yes. But it's like a very difficult thing for me to get by. But, you know, as I mentioned, uh, that it's an extremely well done show. Can't argue with any of that stuff. It's just not necessarily my genre. Yeah, we're going to refer to it now as the fastest chicken in NASCAR because that's going to stick in my head forever now. Fastest chicken on a NASCAR track. That's right, folks. Go ahead and put that on a butter sticker. All right, so here your review on, from Lay. On Megan talks the Last of Us. We are we have segments, so we start with the recap. With me, I every week I lead the recap heroically, beat by beat, while Spencer chimes in with witty anecdotes. I would say witticisms as well. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Then we will go to best line of the episode, which Spencer every week, all the time podcast professional that he is provides me with nominees for best line of the episode however we have a little tradition around here that i do not select any of his nominees and just pick my own so uh, and i'm guessing that won't happen today though i try not to be disappointed about this but i am and have been for the last five years so yeah tradition i'm guessing me you every single listener and even people who aren't listening know what best line of the episode is going to be this week and then we get to uh we're going to do familial scene of the episode right and we were going to do father daughter part of the episode but now we've changed that to familial part of the episode i'm glad we did Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that opens up things for this episode in particular and then we go to my favorite part of the week which is 
our ethical questions of the week with our in-house counsel, Spencer, who will lead us through some ethical quandaries posed Mm -hmm. by the episode. I don't know. Maybe the fact that we don't care about six billion people dying. We could start with that. I don't know. I think we're push- I think we're easily pushing seven billion, maybe even higher at this point. But you know, statistics. That's a good question. Before I start the recap, from what we have seen so far, just in the show, like don't don't do video game canon. Yes. What would be your jelly beans in a jar guess of how many people are left on this planet? I can't. I mean, I, you were saying six, seven billion dead. I think probably even higher than that. I can't imagine this world has a billion people in it, really, given, given how how this thing spreads and what we're seeing of the world, particularly like the U.S. population. Let's say it's starting at like the present three twenty, three thirty, whatever it is, million, whatever it is. Would you think that there are six million people living in the U.S. now, from what we're seeing at least in Boston as a data point? It just depends on how many of the excuse seasons there are, right? Yeah, we do get a bit of an. I think hint in this episode that there are not many QC zones, right? Because they point out there was a bombing in Boston. The bombing worked in Boston, but it didn't most other places. So that tells me there probably isn't that many QC zones, which would lead me to think maybe even less than 6 million. I don't know. At this point, the only ones we've heard are, you know, still operating and running are Atlanta and Boston. That's the only ones on the show that we know exist. That can't house that many people from what we saw. Okay, let's get in a recap. So we start episode two, Infected. In the previously on, we get to focus on the Adlers, that whole scene, the description of what the disease is, Joel's daughter's death. Then a jump ahead to 2023, the Fireflies, Ellie, Joel, and Tess trafficking Ellie. Kind of a long previously on. I just want to say that. It, it went on seemed like a, a lot of faith, a lot of faith in the viewer to remember what happened in the first episode. Um, it, pilots are rough. You want to, you, people heard it was great. Now they're tuning in for episode two. You want to make sure that they're on. They're on top of things. I will say my favorite part of the episode is the cold opening. So we start in Jakarta, Indonesia, and yep, this does look like Indonesia to me. I will, however, I will say that this is, from what my experience was, this is very, very, very downtown Jakarta. This is like yeah, what like the Upper East Side of Manhattan might be. Not in terms of like wealth, but in terms of like how urban centric it is. Like this is most places don't look quite this urban. So some police come into a little shop of sorts, little, little noodle shop or something. Mm-hmm. Gets quiet. They go right to an older lady who is eating alone. They Ip, take her. Uh, go ahead, Doctor Ibu Ratne, as we find out later. Ibu. Yep, they take her. And we get a scene in the car where they apologize to her about her lunch. She says, oh, no, it's fine. I was just finished. She's very so polite lady. She says, excuse me, sir, have I committed a crime? And they say, hmm. no, 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 of course not. You are a professor of mycology. Survey says, what is professor of mycology, Spencer? Fungus. Branch of biology concerned with fungi. Correct. We have the right person. So she goes into a lab and they ask her to look into a microscope at a specimen. Another woman starts to explain it. The policeman cuts her off, says, Ibu, that's her name, right? Ibu? Yeah. Needs to make her own determination, which I think uh, is kind of smart, actually. I loved that. That was such a wonderful touch of where so much in, so much in this kind of presentation, the police officer, military figure, I think he's a general, maybe, or some kind of overlap. I don't know how, the, how it works. He's got to be pretty high up to be working on this thing, right? Yeah. It, it, they have an objective and they're just kind of browbeat people to, you know, go in the direction they want. This guy's very much like, no, 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 we need her to have an impartial opinion. We need her to be able to control the situation going forward. She has to reach her own assessment. I thought that was a nice little touch that this guy comes across as very much in over his head, but very much trying to do things right. He's probably high enough in the Indonesian military to have classified documents as, as house, don't you think? 
I think anybody has that at this point based on present news. See, I mean, I, I, can, I can make that joke now because apparently it's a non, nonpartisan issue. Everybody has that problem. So now I can make that joke. It's a nonpartisan joke. Thanks, and, thanks everybody for bearing with me. Everybody has that problem. I'm checking my desk right now. I've got no idea at this point. Who knows what could be in there? So she looks into this thing, this vial, not vial. What is it? Like the Petri, uh, no, um, slide. slide. There it is, slide. And she looks into it and she says, it's. Ophiocordyceps. Is mm-hmm. that I'm saying that right? Yeah, you, you are very well, well done. <laughs> Shout out to me. Perfect. They tell her it was taken from a human, and she goes, oh, well, you're mistaken. I can't survive in a human. And then he gives her a very grave look. Mm-hmm. And she gets into a hazmat suit. Very serious looking hazmat suit, too. Yeah, this is straight up out of Outbreak style of hazmat suit. This is It's the kind of hazmat suit that there were staged during the early pandemic of where I would have really appreciated and also probably shouldn't have had something like that. Then she gets her hazmat suit on, goes in, looks at the corpse. She examines the dead woman, seeing the shotgun wound to the head first. Then she sees a bite on the leg. She cuts the bite and inside sees something. I don't think it's particularly clear to the viewer exactly what that is that she sees inside the cut at first. My my suspicion is that this person is fooled like a pinata with fungal fibers. Probably. She asks if the bite was from a human, and she looks very grim. She looks inside the mouth and... She uses some tweezers to pull out what looks like a sort of fungal growth, maybe, but it's moving, seems alive. She drops it, freaks out, bails, and gets the fuck out of the room. Me, briefly assuming that this was a different kind of show, really thought she was going to lose two fingers as she was using her index and and, and, uh, center finger to just pull open the mouth. I was like, oh, that jaw is going to slam shut and she's going to lose a couple here. But it's a different kind of show than that. Yeah, they're not cheap, right? Uh, yeah. So I give him credit for that. This is building. This is about building insidious tension and hor. Okay, this episode is directed by Neil Druckmann, the guy who did the guy lead lead leader uh, lead developer on the video game. This opening though is just so damn Chernobyl from that just insidious sense of building and growing horror of where the world is ending. There's this omnipresent sense of dread that's outside of our control, and this opening sells it perfectly. See, I can handle Chernobyl because it's scale, right? Like yeah. one city explodes, I still think there's hope for the world. world <laughs> Pretty explodes, bad, you can write off. World explodes by definition, no hope for the world. Yeah. So cut to her on a couch. The policeman comes in, gives her tea. Well, let's call him the general now. The general comes in, gives her tea. She asks when it happened, and he explained it happened about 30 hours ago at a flour and grain factory. I am going to guess that's important. It is. Put it on the big board. Flour uh, and grain factory. This is a carryover from the video game, if they're going this route. And I'll also offer, for audience sake, Indonesia has the single largest flour mills in the world. They don't make much in the way of wheat products, but good God, do they refine it to ship everywhere. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. I, they, it just seemed like too specific of a detail not to matter later. It also tied this in, uh, them not making pancakes, episode one. Joel saying he's on the Atkins diet, episode one. The old lady being force-fed biscuits, episode one. Data points. She says a perfect substrate. She says this kind of to herself. Yeah. And then he explains a normal woman suddenly became violent. They locked her, her co-workers locked the woman in the bathroom. The police came. She attacked the police and they shot her. She asked about the people she bit. He explains that they were taken for observation. And a few hours later, it was necessary to terminate them. Who bit mm-hmm. her? He says they don't know. So they're still out there alive. She asks if any other workers are missing. He says 14. 
That's such a mic drop. That's such a, we have no control over the situation. Uh We don't even know what the situation is. I love the blocking and pacing of the scene because I think that the woman is still thinking there might be hope until he says 14. Because as soon as he says 14, you notice her hands start to shake badly enough she has to put the tea down. It, the only hope for this kind of moment is that it can be contained. It is that it is still isolated enough that we're still aware enough of where everything is that we can deal with it. And even dealing with, okay, there's one person out there still. All right. That sucks, but sure. But how many other potential carriers are there? 14. where We don't even know where they are. Okay. We're fucked. This, this could be half the city at this point. We have no idea. She says, I have spent my life studying these things. So please listen carefully. There is no medicine. There is no vaccine. He says, so what do we do? Beat, beat, and the most horrifying line of the episode, probably the series to me, will be this. She says, bomb. Start bombing. Bomb this city and everyone in it. It is such a powerful line. It it just, it it, it leaves the... It, I, I love the role reversal here of where usually it's the general proposing like the aggressive murderous solution. It's the scientist trying to talk them down yes. here. The scientist, the expert, the person they've brought in to contain control and build a plan for the situation is just saying our only option is mass murder. That's what, what, what that's what we're left with. A grave look from the policeman whose name is Agus, A-G-U-S. Then she starts to cry and she asks if she, someone can drive her home. So, that's an interesting two beat thing that happened in that discussion. One, she says, you have to bomb, start bombing, bomb the city immediately. And the next is, you know, she was serious about that because she basically says, my job here is over. Can somebody take me home? Like there yeah. is nothing for a professor, a fungus to do in this situation other than to tell you to nuke this entire fucking city. Holy shit. It's so well done. It is so powerful. It is so just out of left field. When she says, I love how she even says it too. She just said, yes, you know, what, what do we do? And there's, as you said, beat, beat, beat. And she just says in, I, I guess it's the same word in English, in, in, in English and um, which, whichever particular boom. language of Indonesia we're using, just boom. It's like, what? And then she just elaborates and your face just falls to horror. I've seen probably, I don't know, 30 of these types of scenes and these types of shows and TV sh- uh, and movies mm-hmm. in my life of the sort of what do we do with the disease there's nothing to be done like mm-hmm. that sort of conversation this is probably the most the the one that was done the best of any of mm-hmm. those i've seen again still don't like the genre but i have to say <laughs> fastest chicken on an ascar track this chicken has jet is jets on it sir you're gonna accept that at some point i was very impressed it was a very very effective cold opening so cut to the intro shoo Whew, I was glad to get to the intro this week. I, I leaped into the intro. <laughs> <laughs> you need a rest by having a visual diorama of the United States being covered with fungus. We start with Ellie. She's waking up. It's L, right? Or Ellie? It's Ellie. Ellie. Good. Yeah. That's what I got in my notes. So not a test Jess situation from last week. I got it right this <laughs> you're, week. You're fixed. You've adjusted. She's waking up. She's outside, but inside, but outside, if that makes sense. On mm-hmm. grass that is wild, that is growing indoors, in essence. She wakes up and turns around. Joel is standing there. She starts to get up and he lifts the gun. So they are worried about her being affected, rightfully, because they saw the bite on her arm. From a tactical standpoint, she is infected. The test comes back positive that she has it in her system. So she can fight that as much as she wants. She's just a different category than, we, than, they, than they understand exists. I would question how the test is working. Sure. Right? Very fair question. Because it, are those little weird 
fungus growy movie things in her mouth and body and leg probably not but there's something that's causing the test to trigger so i wonder what that is Mm -hmm. so she looks at joel she says do i look like i'm infected joel asks to see her arm we see it looks like it did yesterday matter of fact might be a little better yeah healing look at that yeah it's not getting any worse is it she asks why they aren't getting swarmed in the open city i'd like to um, i'd like to address this now but it, it goes on in dialogue throughout the episode she has an embedded assumption that once you leave the QZ, you get swarmed. I think that's telling us part of the propaganda that what Fedra has is feeding the populace, which is you have to stay here if you if so much as take a step out there and in, in uh, past the QZ, you'll be swarmed. Which, yeah. we, in if you think about it logically, is kind of stupid. I mean, her her perspective on what the world is outside the QZ is that it's just wall to wall infected. Like, there's just no room you can even move between point A and point B without just having to, you know, rub shoulders with the infected to get by. Plainly, that's not true. But as you said, it serves Fedra's interests to have that be the common mindset, coupled with the fact that it's illegal to leave the QZ, as we saw with people being hanged for it anyway. It adds into the element of control and not having to deal with, you know, people potentially exposing or bringing in the threat. She doesn't strike me as someone who would make that leap. I think Fedra fed that to her, right? Yeah. She says that she got bit, and then Marlene found her, monitored her. How did they monitor you? They made me count to ten to hold out my hand, but you know, I think the thing that really impressed them is I didn't turn into a fucking monster. Good line. Fair read. Fair read. She goes to the bathroom, tests throws her a magazine to wipe with. That might seem like a throwaway thing. I think it's important. Right away, Tess is doing more to help this girl... She's on her side right away. I mean, she she gets more and more on her side as she goes through her personal situation and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But right away, she's like, she thought to give her something to wipe with. Like, I don't think that's a crude joke. I think it's like, hey, look, Tess is thinking about her in a way that Joel, there's no way at this stage Joel would have thought to do that. Hey, if you want to put it in brass tacks, the most parental thing you can do is to wipe their ass. That is one of the most foundational things you do with respect to a child is you clean their ass when their ass needs to be cleaned. Throwing toilet paper is part of that process. Like, if you had to score this in terms, we'll assess this as the episode goes on, but on a 10-point scale, where is Joel versus where is Tess when it comes to familial feelings directed at Ellie? Right now, Tess is at a four. Joel is at a zero. Yeah, Joel has no investment. Joel is ready to shoot her because Joel thinks she's a fungus. So he's at a zero. I think Tess gets more there as the episode goes on, but she starts maybe at about four or five. So Ellie asks, there isn't going to be anything bad in there. Joel, just you. Very funny. Mm -hmm. Tess and Joel start talking with Ellie away. Tess says she made it through the night, Joel. Joel says it doesn't matter. Basically, in his mind, she's toast. She's cooked. It's it's over for her. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. But she's going to go at some point. He has written her off entirely. As you said, he has as much emotional attachment to her as he does a mushroom on a plate. Probably even less, because he can eat the mushroom. And the mushroom on the plate isn't going to bite its head off. So Yes. Tess says if they take her back to the QC, they'll test her and they'll kill her, which we have seen is true. That's the importance of the young girl who was walking to the Boston QZ when we got the time jump in the last episode. We know that's true. If they test yes. her, they will kill her. We seen dead on. This is a very accurate assessment of the situation. Joel says, well, better them than us. Tess protest. Joel drops this line, which is potential line of the episode. You need to stop talking about this kid like she's got some kind of life in front of her. That is something I would say in this situation. That is something I feel as a viewer. And I think that is accurately. 
I mean, so I think I think it's we can assess that line on two levels. A, he thinks that she's literally going to die because she's infected, and it's only a matter of time. But also, B, this is Joel's philosophy on the world: that the world is dead, nothing matters, no one has any hope. Why should we care about an individual? Exactly. I think that's his perspective on things, and I think that's the thing that you're warring with is that so much has died, so much has been lost. How could you not have that kind of view? Yeah, I mean, I would have that. I, I just said, as a viewer, I have that same opinion. That's why I thought the line was so effective is that mm -hmm. it, it blows past this concept of does she have the fungus in her now? Is she going to turn into one of these attacking fungi zombie things in the next five, 10 days? That almost doesn't matter. He's saying she doesn't have a life in front of her regardless. Let's not get attached, right? He's almost, comes, he's, he's almost browbeating Tess on the subject of why do you still care about the individual? Which is my question. Ellie comes back <laughs> and they start to eat. But guess what? Ellie has her own. Looks like a chicken sandwich. Looks like Looks a chicken like a parm. Damn, damn good chicken sandwich. Is that a chicken like, parm situation? That, that's like, you know, hard yeah. to find at a quality store level of chicken sandwich. Much less, can you imagine what the relative value would be, not just on chicken, but bread mixed together to form a chicken sandwich in the apocalypse? This is a luxury item beyond compare. Yeah, it blew Tess's mind because Tess almost didn't recognize chicken at this point. She says, is that chicken? So they are eating some really, really dry jerky, which I'm sure is possum, raccoon, squirrel. I mean, at this point, at you're best. Gonna eat, yeah, and, and I don't think we, we, that's not funny. We shouldn't look down on that. Everybody would be eating that type of stuff in this situation, for sure. The, the, the rat population of Boston, I'm guessing, is significantly lower now than it ever was in any modern era. Yeah, I'm just thinking about my gosh, Schmeagel. Just with a rat in front of my boy. Oh, Proper my rat burgers. Like, a, like, a, like Spencer at a pancake buffet. Damn straight, yes. Test now, jumps up. That and... will be harder now because you made that comparison, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Just ruined his appetite. Tess jumps up and asks her why she's so... Why are you so damn important? Tells her, I'm going to talk to you like an adult, okay? Look, we are not nice people. Mm -hmm, and she tries mm -hmm. to explain. They're just doing this for their own self-interest. So don't look at us like your parents, Right but we don't know what you're worth. And if we don't know what you're worth, we don't know how valuable yet you are. Yeah, and, and, we we don't know, and we won't care. And we won't care. Yeah. She says, Ellie says, you take me, you, you take me back. You won't get your battery. And then Joel jumps in and, or Tess jumps in and says, you heard that. Well, then you also heard he wants to shoot you, which I think was pretty effective because he did say that. Tess reiterates, they need to know why she's so important. So answer my question. Ellie looks down, mutters something about being told not to tell anyone. And by God, now here she is telling the very first, first people she meets. She mm -hmm. says, there's a Firefly base camp somewhere out west, and they are working on a cure. Joel, uh-huh, I've heard this before. Ellie continues, and whatever happened to me is the cue, Joel, to finish the sentence for her key to finding the vaccine. Joel finishes her sentence and says, "This, that's what this is? We've heard this a million times. Vaccine, miracle cures, none of it ever works. This feels like a guy not only of just profound loss, but also disappointed hopes. That he, this... His level of disdain for this almost implies that he's been invested before and been spurned. I would imagine in the 20 years since, a lot of pe anybody who's lived that 20 years has gone through this up in this roller coaster. Jaded. I'm sure they, I mean, how Cynical. could you not? Because, I mean, I'm sure Fedra says, oh, we'll just bomb. That'll contain it. Oh, we'll just create QZs. That'll contain it. Oh, we've got a potential vaccine. Oh, that's not working. <laughs> oh, we got, we got this. We got that. Because... I'm sure that whoever is governing this world, which it seems right now to be Fedra, mm -hmm. is cycling through all of these attempts, right? And that would create you to be pretty jaded, especially as you see so many more people die. So I 
very, very sympathetic to Joel's perspective here. They've done nothing but spend the last 20 years seeing the world die a little bit more every day. This isn't a, this isn't an environment where hope survives very well or very long. But you notice that every time he espouses this sort of like jaded, fatalistic view, Tess never chimes in. Tess does not seem to have this kind of mindset. I think that's proven even more as the episode goes on. I think she, I think she's in some ways been trying to grapple with the fact that Joel does. So Joel says none of it works. And then she, Ellie, says something that I think is extremely abundantly fair. She says, fuck you, man. I didn't ask for this. Fair. She didn't. Joel says you and me both. Joel tells Tess, this isn't going to end well. Tess, we need to get back. Tess says, let's just finish it. Does it matter if she is or she isn't what the Fireflies say? If they believe she is, then we get what we want. I had the feeling in that line that Tess was more concerned than just the battery. She's, ah. she's using the battery to control to control and manage Joel, but I think at this point she cares more than just about the battery. Strong agree. She's using the language to motivate Joel rather than expressing, I think, what she actually feels here. She is speaking to him how she needs to to get him to do what she wants, and she's hiding maybe her own rationale for that. Joel, to Tess, says if she so much as twitches, Ellie... <laughs> Tess cuts her off. It's like, don't do that. In a real serious way. And that cutoff of that seriousness from Tess, I think, is really underpinned later about, uh, yeah, maybe don't do that, please. Tess is legitimately trying to keep her alive. And Ellie, I don't think, Ellie is as mature as you can be for your age, given the world that she's operating in. She still is also a kid. She's got a, you know, maturity isn't a single bar. No, it's not. Yeah, you're, there's all you're kinds not moving of on one maturity. spectrum. There's all kinds of different maturity, right? And she's yeah. extremely immature in some ways, but very immature in other ways. Like, if you need her to, I don't know, risk her life running through a mall with a bunch of infected zombies, Can she's, do. About as, she's about as mature as you get. But if you need somebody to, I don't know, parse their feelings in this particular situation, I'm not sure she's capable of doing that. And I'm not, I'm not sure very many – to a conversation we had in the last episode, I would, I would highly doubt – Many of the children who were born during this era are. I think a lot of them are probably emotionally stunted. I also, I also think in some ways that her prickliness, her sarcasm, whatever else, is trying to appear more mature. She's trying to deal with people that she doesn't really know. She's trying to, you know, represent that she's her own person, whatever else. And it comes across as false rather than real and legitimate. And they're just kind of trying to brush through it. But that feels generationally appropriate there. Yeah. What you just described happens here because... Uh, Tess asks Joel if he's okay. Finally, he says, okay. Joel picks up a gun. She says, can I have one? He says, absolutely not. She says, okay, Jesus, fine. I'll just throw a fucking sandwich at it then. That line is exactly what I thought you, you were talking about there. Yeah. Where she's using her attempts at humor and sarcasm, which now seem forced and fake, to try to blend in you know, create a little unit here with these people that she doesn't know and to appear maybe a little older than she really is. Sure. There's also her fascination with the weapons that continues throughout this entire episode. I, I also have to say that sandwich, if you threw that at me, that would distract me. I would happily tra- change objectives for the sake of seeing what the hell that sandwich is. That, that sandwich is a chicken parm until I hear from the showrunner differently. That's a chicken I parm. really want a chicken parm now. I haven't had a chicken parm in a while, and your description and that sandwich are selling me on it. Make sure you get a little sautéed mushrooms with it, my friend. A little sautéed uh, mushrooms. Don't know if I can insert fungus in my food right now. Not in the mindset for it. They leave the room they're in. When they walk out, Ellie is amazed. Joel says, looks a lot different in the daylight, huh? We see these beautiful, 
beautiful but tragic shots of post-apocalyptic Boston. Joel tells them they should get moving. She says, it's like a fucked up moon. Is this where they bombed? Tess says, yes. They hit most of the big cities like this. They had to slow the spread somehow. Worked here, but it didn't in most places. Which I think explains a couple things. One is that our scientist from the cold opening, Mm -hmm. her... They didn't, obviously in Jakarta, they didn't do what she told them to do. They didn't Not in time, times. anyway. Not in time. But they eventually started doing this. But we also find out that maybe because it worked in Boston is why we have a QC zone in Boston. Mm-hmm. And maybe is why someone like Joel is in Boston as opposed to Austin, which he was at the start of the episode. Yeah. This also further explains that I've had some people comment that this city looks too lost to nature and too damaged to feel like that this would happen in just a 20-year period. And I agree, I will agree that it's, it looks a bit fast. They're really going um, an aggressive kind of position with it. But hearing that bombing has occurred in pretty much every major city in America and has been a driving factor for why they are so blown to shit explains a lot. and explains all the more why they're just completely left to the wilderness like a blasted hellscape. Completely agree. Tess shows them where the state house is, or at least the track to it. Um, Joel asks if they should go the long way or the short way test. It's the long way or the we're fucking dead way. Ellie, <laughs> well, I vote long way just based on that limited information. So I think it's another type of line, just like the throw in the sandwich at him thing where she's just trying to fit in where she can get in. Yes. Joel seems so annoyed with her though, through this entire first 45, 50 minutes of the episode. You, you described Joel as being at a zero at this point. I don't think he ever makes it farther than a two. And that may even be pushing it. He disagree. T- he, you think he comes a bit farther? I think he's at a seven by the end of the episode, but only because of his interaction with Tess. I, I think it's cheating when assessing necessarily his own feelings on the subject. Completely agree. We'll get it's, there. It, it was artificially enhanced. So then we see just these <laughs> god-awful shots of restaurants with the glasses still on the table. I know it's made by the same person, but it's very Chernobyl-esque, right? It's like the yeah. entire world shut down in this moment and if you're gonna like if you were going to right now boom shut the whole world down and what you jump forward 20 years later you would see things like my teacup which is now on the table right you would see left where it was all the stuff that you're seeing i know a lot of this is cgi particularly the they they did not get a whole city that they could make look like this but they blend it so well, connecting into these what are very impressive indoor sets that they built for this, that it just feels so damn real. So much ap- apocalyptic fiction, they just film it in a relatively abandoned city, and you just kind of go with that. They had a the thought process going into how this would look 20 years on, or how this would look if it was completely left just to the wild, and it works for me. It works for me very well. I'm struggling at times to accept that this is not just filmed on location somewhere. So here's how well it worked. I had no idea it was filmed indoors on a soundstage at all. Mm -hmm. I thought it was outside and they superimposed some CG on it. That was my guess. Second is I'm guessing that part of the benefit of having source material is stuff like this. Because I I would bet the video game thought through how some of this stuff would look. I bet you get visuals in the video game about how you some of this stuff looked that people thought about for a really long time that they could use, enhance, build upon. Helps have source material. Yeah, it gives you an opportunity to refine what was already a very polished product. Ellie asked, where the fuck are they already? Tess says, well, you'll know when they're close, which I completely agree. <laughs> you'll know. Tess then asked, crash got bit. Ellie says she went to the mall. 
uh, at the QC. Test clarifies, you mean the one that's boarded up that no one's supposed to go in, like, ever? Ellie says, yeah, I snuck in. Shouldn't think any of them would be in there. Just wanted to know what it's like, what the mall's like. Like any other 14-year-old kid. Just wants to to see what the mall is like. Can you believe that? 20 years later, the mall's still sucking in the tweens. Yeah, gotta go go to the mall. Gotta gotta, gotta go to the mall in Noto. One cat got to go to Noto. One came out of nowhere and got her. Tess asked, so you just went in there alone? Ellie says, yeah. Tess clarifies her age, 14. Tess says, wow. Well, I mean, you got some balls on you, sister. Ellie says, thanks. And I think she means, I think that's the first positive moment that Ellie has had with these people where she felt like, oh, they might like me. It's the first unsarcastic moment, too. It's the first, like, legitimately appreciated rather than trying to act tough. And you've got it from Tess. You can see Tess is bonding already. They keep moving, climbing. In the background, we see all the cars on the highway. Oh, see, I can't. That's the stuff that gets me. The loss. Yeah. I look at all those cars and I'm like, it's over. Like, it's game over. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think of like, like, here's my, here's my question to the viewer. Do you, is your ego really big enough to think that you're Joel in this situation and you're not the guy in the car? This is the fun divide when it comes to apocalypse fiction is everyone kind of immediately people that love the genre in particular are always going to the mindset that they're going to be one of the ones that survive when eh, odds are no. Nah, no. odds are most of you died within the first couple of days, like 60 percent of the rest of you today. Odds are you panicked, you got in the car, you got stuck on the freeway, you got killed and you became a fungus. And then you probably crapped out at some point being a fungus like you're not Joel. You sucked at being a fungus. You were one of the ones that just faded away in the in the, the first few weeks. Yeah, that's, man, that stuff really just bums me out watching it, and it it it, it bums me out to the, taking me out of the plot. If that makes any sense, I, I need you to do a full Hudson Arc Malian series. I, you can shout game over as much as you want, man, but I need you to make it through to the end so you can get dragged through the floorboards. I need you to make this happen. Tess asked if people would be coming for her mom, dad, boyfriend. I've been orphaned and uh, knew. So she, I guess she's saying no to the boyfriend. Mm. Ellie continues saying that <clears throat> everyone says the open city is crazy. Like swarms of infected running around everywhere. Joel says it's not exactly like that. Tess says people like to tell stories. Eh, I think it's a little more insidious than that. Tess, I think it's Fedra. I think it's Fedra telling that story as propaganda to keep people in the it serves their control. Interest. And I'm sure that if you talk to Firefly folks, they would be very quick to tell you that the outside is not like that because they probably don't like Fedra propaganda. That's my guess of how this probably breaks down. She asks. I think that's a very accurate read. I think it also can feed on itself in a dangerous way to a certain degree. Or I, think, I, I would bet the average Firefly has gone so far in the opposite direction as to start denying in some ways that the apocalypse exists. Maybe even trying to say it's a plot in some way. Hmm. Oh, oh, oh boy, there's some parallels to our modern world there. Drawing so, references. Uh, <laughs> look at me trying to stay above board. Ellie asked, so there aren't super infected that explode fungus spores on you? Tess said, shit, I hope not. I think that's a little, isn't that like a little tongue-in-cheek joke from the video game? There are totally is? super infected that explode spores on you in the video game. Not in the show. It works differently. Yeah, a little tongue-in-cheek for the video game there, yeah. Uh, Ellie continues, or ones whose heads split open that see in the dark like bats, they get quiet at that question. They don't say a word in response to that one. So they hear something off, far off. Doesn't sound like a bird. I'll say mm-hmm. that. Ellie no asks, plane. Much, Joel says, <laughs> no, no bird, no plane. What is it? It's a head split open fungus zombie that sees in the dark a like man. bats. Ellie asks what it was. Joel says, let's just keep moving. And we see more shots of the city. I think, you know, this episode is likely going to be remembered for three things. One, Mm -hmm. an amazing cold opening. Two, damn straight. 
40 minutes of gorgeous shots of the post-apocalypse Boston and three, what happens with Tess. I think that's what this episode is. Fair. I definitely agree with the first two. Third one, we're going to get there. That's the hotel and there are ducks in the standing water. Guess who doesn't get the fungus? Ducks. I I like that we're getting more and more indications that fungus host as part of its reproductive cycle is humans. Everybody else is fine. The world is continuing on without us in some ways, including frogs playing the piano. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was a uh, I think it might have been a turtle, right? Was that a turtle or a frog? I, I thought it was a frog. It was just on on the keys playing a ba- playing a really rad tune. I was really hoping it was a turtle. I had a teenage mutant ninja turtle joke flying <laughs> up there, but you ruined it. it. I, it I, I, it's a turtle, man. I don't know why I misspoke here. I'm here for the turtle. <laughs> okay. At least, yeah, I just thought it had a little purple bandana on there. Ellie is oh. impressed with the hotel. Ask if they ever stayed in a place like that. Tess says, ah, it's a little bit out of our league. Joel, how do you even know what it is? Ellie ever heard of books? So she's a smart ass, but through her being a smart ass, we're learning about her. Mm-hmm. We know she's a reader. World. We know she's a reader, right? Mm-hmm. That as much as she seems like a pain in the ass, I think she was probably pretty good in school uh, based on what, knowledge she has so how quick she is like deducing and working her way through joel's code and also tricking him with respect to getting it this is a quick intelligent girl she knows detroit's in michigan so they go to walk and ellie says she can't swim joel's like uh are you kidding me and he jumps up and down she goes i don't know how i was supposed to know that which that, that, um just made my wife just chuckle that's the type of thing that's the type of interaction my wife and i would have where i would i would say uh look and she'd go how was i supposed to how was i supposed to know that are you kidding me it was a really funny uh, scene. Well done. It's also a video game joke, joke too, about Ellie not being able to swim. Oh, really? She can't swim? Not at all. Like, you know, coded in kind of thing. Oh. So, oh, so that probably, like, if you're car- if you're transporting her, it probably stops you from just it, jumping in the water. It, it's the digital walls kind of thing about That's how do I stop them from going this direction? Water. She can't swim. There you go. Ask them if they ever. Um, no. Uh, so then Ellie uh, goes over. And is having a good time. She says, oh, gross, check it out. Ding, ding, yes, sir. I would like your finest sweet, sir. Would you like me to take your luggage? Yes, ma'am, right away. Now, Joel goes, you're a weird kid. Spencer? You're a weird kid. It's at a one. It's at a one? I moved yeah, Joel I... up to a one. Very he fair. He said, you're a weird kid. He moved up to a one. The, the, he was a little amused there. He was he like, was. yeah, okay, you're okay. And you know how we know that? Because... Uh, through her doing something that she shouldn't have been doing, which is fiddling with stuff, a body falls out, which causes her to panic a little bit. And Joel doesn't give her shit for it. He just I, pulls her out. I'm going to call on you now because I really liked you doing that. You're, please assess for me when Joel starts moving up the 10-point rankings over the course of this, these episodes. You got it. Uh, that's a, I'm that's here a for it. We got. Freaks Ellie out a little bit. But as Joel pulls her back, he touches her hand, and you can see he's worried about touching her. Mm-hmm. Which makes me question, does just touching the skin of an infected give it to you? Like, why would he be, I thought, I thought you have to get bit or it has to spore into you. Uh, Just that simple touching, I wouldn't think would do it. I agree. But think about how paranoid people were around people with like AIDS for the first few decades after it came out. Like, you know, any touching them could potentially get infected. Are you kidding me? I coughed in a CVS the other day. The place cleared out. Yeah, it still (laughs) happens for sure. This tracks with that. But if this is the world you operate in, this is the, you know, pandemic. Any realizing somebody's infected now puts like a 10 foot circle around them. Yeah, I agree. They get to the top of the stairway and Ellie says it wasn't so bad. Just comments that it's harder with their old knees. So this is a good point. Allow me to go down a rabbit hole. Things like knee surgery, 
replacement joint therapy, mm-hmm. physical therapy, does not exist. Your hip or knee joint you goes just hurt. Good effing luck. I don't. I th- you know think about how many people get post seventy and get a knee or a hip replacement. It's a very high percentage of people who have means in our society, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going back to a pre-modern era of where okay, this part of you is given out. Okay, well you just die now because you can't care for yourself. You so can't that, carry your own weight. Exactly. So that made me think. People probably up at the life. I mean, obviously the life expectancy is super low, but like, I just don't think you're going to see people who are like 75, 80 in this society because they can't do little things like, I don't know, run because they don't have a knee anymore. Yeah. It's one of those things where if we see people that are like, you know, 70, 80 or are have any degree of disability or dependent in that kind of physical, particularly kind of way, it almost suggesting a level of civilization because there's a network that can now support and protect and provide them, you know, resources so they can be their own selves and operate still. That otherwise is just probably completely lacking outside of there. And I'm willing to bet we're not going to see many civilizations that are able to have the resources to accommodate that. He gets to the top of the stairway and Ellie says, ah, it wasn't so bad. It's a good point. They get to, uh, they continue to go up and the way is barricaded. Tess says she could climb up, work her way around and let them in through the back way. Ellie offers to do it brave. So we're continuing to learn more about Ellie. She's brave. She's willing to be the one to go. Perhaps foolhardily so, based on the mall data point. So she likes to read. I think that she probably has interpersonal struggles because she's struggling to connect with these people. I think she's a little funny and still a little childish with the thing that she did in the hotel. And then I think that she's also a little brave. I'm learning about Ellie. Good summary. Tess says no, because if you die, we get nothing. Also, why is Tess so quick to offer up her life? She's just willing to just go. No problem. You don't see Joel. You don't see Joel saying, I'll do it. She, she's the she, she's the just right kind of you know intermediary. She's smaller than Joel, more lithe, whatever else can fit through things. She, it's so assumed that she's going to do it. I just have to believe that's just part of their established role. It's just okay, tight spot, acrobatics required. Here you go, Tess. I'll help you up. Yeah, he does, and he asks her if she's good up there. She's it's a bit of a mess. She's going to do a little few need a few minutes to move some things around to find them through the back way. Joel sits against the wall as does Ellie. She asks him a series of questions as he plays with, as she plays with her knife. Joel does comment on her playing with her knife. He says, where did you learn to do that? Where did you learn to flip it, basically? She goes, the circus. <laughs> <laughs> you are an ass, Ellie. Well, she's an ass, but she also probably, at this point, is a history buff. Didn't yeah. even know what the circus is. You have, have, you have to have read about pre-apocalyptic society a lot to get to a detail like the circus. Yeah, hell, Barnum and Bailey's not even touring nowadays. We're we're going way back in history. She then asks, where are you from? He says, Texas, which we knew. He's being honest with her, so that's good. What about Tess? Detroit. It's in Michigan. I I know where it is. I go to school. Mm. Huh. So you two are uh, pass. So he will not answer (laughs) that question. Not talking. How'd you end up in Boston? Pass. No more questions about me. She says, how long do infected live? He says, oh, I thought you went to school. She says, it's a really shitty one. (laughs) (laughs) 1.5, Spencer, 1.5. I also think it's very effectively telling that she has books that she can learn about the world that was before the apocalypse. She can hear false stories about the number of infected outside, but actually how infected work. Fedra probably doesn't let that knowledge spread too much necessarily about, you know, how long they endure out there. I have a question for you. Please. You said... I just, this is absolutely apropos of nothing. Apologize, everybody, but it just connects with me. You said Indonesia makes all the flour. Mm-hmm. What if the way it spread is it was in the flour 
into Indonesian flower facilities and that got sent around the world. And it basically was like a shotgun start at a golf event, like how you put everybody on hole one, two, three, four, and then you shoot the shotgun and you all start at the same time. If it was from the same batch or a similar batch of flour that got shipped everywhere, then, it, then, it, then the Adlers wouldn't have gotten it from the hospital. They'd have gotten it from their fucking cookies. And wouldn't that also explain why it all happened on the same day at the same time around the world, or at least closely in line with each other? And ah. didn't you so beautifully say last episode that, man, when they talk about, like, Jakarta on the news, whatever else, everybody should be paying attention to that, because that's going to be at their front door shortly. And I was just applauding in my head when you were saying that. Yeah, it is at your front door. You know where it's at? It's at your fucking Uber Pantry. delivery of your Uber delivery of food with your flour. It went into all the flour that went all over the world and bam, shotgun start to the pandemic. That's ah, I just figured something out. That was really fun. Well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So he starts to answer this question about how long do infected live? He says, well, some last about a month or two. I would say those are the lucky bodies, the lucky bodies that get to just end. Mm. But then there's others that have been walking around for 20 years. Now I've got a lot of questions about how some can live for a month or two and others can walk around about 20 years. I think we might start to get to an answer as we move on. Uh, but it's uh, it, it, that's a complicated one. Well, needless to say, you meet a few in this episode that have been around longer than others. Ever kill one? Yeah, I killed lots of them. I knew the answer to that already. Joel's killed a lot of these fuckers in 20 years. Mm-hmm. She says, was it hard like knowing they were people once, which I think is a particularly insightful question. And he says, sometimes, yeah, it is. Spencer, two. Two. You're at, we're at two now. Look at that. What about the guy last night? He looks up. I think Joel was going to entertain this question, which is the guy last night was the security guard he'd been selling oxys to that he punched in the face. If Joel wasn't inclined to answer this question, you would have said pass up front. I agree. I think if Tess hadn't interrupted right here, Joel would have gone in on this topic. Yeah, a really funny thing happens. They hear something and Tess just yells, put the gun down, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> this has happened before. They know each other well. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look good. And Joel says, what now? They walk onto the balcony. Again, all signs of a moment in time when everything ended. You're passing in literal tables at look, a look, what fine I would restaurant. Think, what I would th- yeah, what I would think is like a sort of maybe ceiling restaurant, you know, those restaurants that they put ceiling, a roof, rooftop restaurant. They yeah. yeah. On the, on the, Classy places. And the, the, the glasses are still there 20 years later. It's really, really sad. She goes up to the steps, looks around and sees a lot of bodies. You would expect to see a lot of bodies, right? It's 20 years later, post-apocalyptic. A lot of people have died. What you don't expect Spencer is the <laughs> ant farm that I saw down there. You wouldn't expect them to writhe in waves. Like, you know, like a whole mass of like certain kind of insects, like cicadas or whatever else of when one, something affects them at one end and it kind of just ripples through them. It's like, that was unsettling to watch that kind of hive mindset go through. She says, there's so many Tess says that the last time they came through, a lot of them were still in the buildings, but she guesses enough people came through looking for the QZ. So that would make a lot of sense, right? If you live anywhere else, fucking out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, you have got to figure out a way to find a QZ or maybe you make your own. I mean, there's probably, there's, that's probably happening. A lot of, you know, like a lot of these people who live in the country might make it a lot longer because they might just hole up there. And, you know, a lot of these country areas are very sparsely populated. So there's not that many humans you have to kill, right? (laughs) If -hmm. you're still alive, like if you're in a neighborhood of 20 and you want to survive, you and your wife, you only have to kill 18 people, right? Yeah. It's a lot better an apartment building in Manhattan. Yeah, if you're in certain parts of like Wyoming, whatever else, once you've just you know eliminated the, among your immediate neighbors, 
not not much more effect unless they're going to move into herds into your community there's not much more in the way of waves that are going to come through yeah the duttons are still okay they're, the they're still doing all right there in the Yellowstone. they're still fine right uh, <laughs> so you see another they're the cows around, they're great and they are moving and to your point spencer i wrote my my notes that it's almost like a like blades of grass all moving oh together that's good putting the wind it picks up the wind picks up and you see all the blades of grass just sort of like move and, and fan hey spencer kind of like wheat oh look at that yeah fans kind of like wheat <laughs> wait there's a, there's a particular kind of plant it's, it's like it's like the sensitive plant whatever else that if you like touch it it rolls up on itself mm-hmm. it almost had that effect of where you touch one side and all the leaves roll up afterwards yeah if that leaf tells a leaf three states over that it's been touched yeah it would be that, <laughs> the same exact thing i send zombies food here <laughs> Ellie looks up at them and says they're connected. Tess is more than you know, which I think probably the most true thing said in the entire episode. Mm -hmm. The fungus also grows underground, long fibers like wires connecting over a mile. I'm going to guess it's more than a mile. Now, you step on a patch of cordyceps in one place, and you can wake a dozen infected from somewhere else. So what what she's saying is you step on a live cordyceps, a live part of this fungus. It could potentially activate and tell... I'm going to call them host humans mm-hmm. that have this thing host within everything within a 50 mile radius to come at you, which now, you know, I made a comment last episode, which you, you've done such a good job of being like, Oh, let, let, let Lee talk a little bit. And I was like, you're not going to see strategy out of these things. It's easy to just shoot them right in the head. Like I, I was going off about how they had no strategy at all. And they were just like, you know, mindless things running at you. That's obviously proven false because there's a there's a, a mushroom network, as it were. Yeah, we, we can debate what level of actual intelligence is going into that to what, or what degree it's just, you know, primal, instinctual, whatever else. But it there is a there is a neuron signal that is going through this thing. She and says, you referenced the idea that like probably more than a mile is realistic. I was just doing it because I was pretty sure there are funguses that we know in the world that cover almost 1700 football fields in terms of size. So, yeah, we just know really that fungus can spread over that kind of territory. You want to know what my wife would do in this situation? Mm. She'd try to see if you could cut off a piece of it and eat it. She's a real mushroom forager. <laughs> she does that. She would not recommend head, this. All that stuff. She could say, hey, maybe that's a way we fix it is we just we, start eating this stuff. We can go looking for truffles later. I'm not going to recommend cook these for, for, for the meal. You got to cook it. You got to cook it first, obviously. She says to Ellie. Tess says to Ellie, now they know where you are. Now they come. You are not immune from being ripped apart. You understand? It's important. I'm trying to keep you alive. Potential line of the episode. Lovely, lovely moment between Ellie and Tess. Uh, uh, Tess is this point six, maybe? Five, six? She might be a seven now. I mean, she's she's literally giving her... Parental like advice. That. She's giving her street smarts on how yeah. this fucking thing works at, a, at the ground level, which is information that I would think you probably need to be in Fedra to know at this point. Yeah, if, if Marlene was right that this girl was merely cargo to you, there's no reason to educate the cargo. No. She says, so we're not going that way. So what do we do then? Short way? Joel just looks at Tess and says, museum. They obviously have been this route before, so they walk mm. up to an older <laughs> building. So much vegetation everywhere. They've obviously been this route before and then decided to never do this route again. What does that mean? Yeah. It means that you better have... So that factory that's pills and bullets, you better hope that the half of that factory has been pumping out some bullets. You're going to need them, yeah. Joe. You're going to need them. So they walk up. It looks like the fungus has grown all over this building. She says, well, there's a way across on the top floor. Ellie doesn't like it. 
Joel checks the cordyceps in the front of the building and it's bone dry. He says, cooked, cooked. He posits that could mean that they are all dead in there. I, I I like that the fungus isn't just taking over the world. It either visibly has a life cycle that has living and dying and whatever else, the way real fungus do, or it has an element of like the red creep or the red vine from Spielberg's War of the Worlds of where it's also just not well suited to operate really. It grew incredibly fast. It developed a perfect medium, but it's still not that great adapted to the world. No, it, it's, it does seem to me that when it crawls up on the buildings, it eventually dies because it looks like a lot of really shot cordyceps on the Yes. On the buildings themselves. So Leaves its mark, but doesn't last long. Tess and Joel get their flashlights out. Ellie has one, too. She wasn't just... She didn't just get sandwiches. Really sweet-looking chicken parm sandwiches packed. It was also flashlights. Tess tells her more ground rules. They go slowly. If they come against anything, get behind us. Joel pulls a gun out. Ellie says she has a spare hand, meaning I want a gun. Joel says congratulations. Joel's still at a 1.5. No, two. I'm going to say two. Hell, not giving your children guns? Also a parental thing. Maybe he's even getting farther. That's a good question. In this society, so yeah, this is the this is the when to give your kid an iPad of the post, post-apocalypse. When do you give your kid a gun in this world? As early as they can handle it without shooting themselves. I agree. We- weapon skills are now the essential element of day-to-day survival. Like, you know... Learning how to drive is part of your commute. Learning how to use a weapon to defend yourself is your new commute. So you've got me reading Shogun, which is a wonderful 1,200-page Glad you're enjoying book. it. Question for you. Why don't we just go back to swords? Why aren't we cutting the heads off these things? Uh, I mean, for a lot of zombie fiction, you don't because it spreads the blood, whatever else. Here, I mean, swords can be pretty effective because you don't need to, like, cut off the head or anything. They're just alive. If you kill them, they're dead. <laughs> I could, I could think Taranga could probably handle some of these people. Swords require a lot of training, you know, but some degree of melee combat now needs to be part of the basic curriculum going forward. Gimli with an axe situation. They go inside the old museum and man, oh man, it is an old museum and it is pretty creepy. You see the old exhibits and posters all talking about U.S. history, which now seems so trite and unimportant in the world what george washington did in 17 something who gives a fuck now right and there are government institutions surviving the united states endures sir they see a sign for the gift shop (laughs) it just makes you laugh then they see some older infected host joel examines them and says yeah cooked cooked they're 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 done tess says they finally had some luck tess is excited she thinks they might all be dead in there joel posits they could have gone that way initially one last one little comment. I love this is just a, a difference in mindset between mediums of a video game versus a show. This is almost shot for shot very similar to the level of the video game. And throughout it, I had to stop myself from saying, "Why aren't they searching all the drawers everywhere? Why aren't they ch- charting on the back alleys to find supplies and extra ammunition?" I'm like, "Oh wait, shit! This is real life. You would never do that in real life." But yeah, in a video game, it's part of the experience. We also established they can hear and not see, so they they certainly wouldn't be checking drawers of anywhere like this. Too anymore. much noise. Yeah, Ellie then sees a person who looks. Sort of freshly killed, really. And Real fresh, like she wanted, yesterday. She was like, what the hell did that? Tess says, maybe he was attacked outside, crawled through the doors to get inside. That you, seems like... You hope, Tess. She's desperate. She yeah. seems like a desperate explanation there. This is effectively their only route now. They need to make it work, and she needs to believe it's still open. But no, this we'll guy... S- yeah, we're seeing that difference in the two characters, right? Is that Tess still allows herself to hope about things, and Joel just doesn't give a fuck. They, they, are, an ide- they are an idealist and a pessimist slash cynic kind of pair. Tess says, um, I don't hear anything. Ellie says she was attacked by one, and it certainly wasn't like that. It didn't do what that thing has done. 
Well, for one, he's, for one, he's dead. Like that, 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 that's a level of aggression that's not even, you know, beneficial to the fungus. It doesn't make sense to me why he would be mangled in a way that she, that she wasn't attacked, that we don't see them attacking. I still haven't pieced that piece together, why he looks like that. My guess on interpretation is that she has never seen someone attacked by things that are farther along down the fungal life cycle chain. Ah, that makes sense. Joel then says, from this point forward, they are silent. No, no, not quiet. Silent. Got it, Spencer? Silent. No questions. Just do it. Silent. You've always hoped for this. I know Silent! You have. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to be listening. Joel leads the way up the stairs. So they keep going up, and all the fungus that has grown is just... I got unsettling. I think it's a little unsettling. It's intentionally so. Successfully so. The fact that the bodies are grown into it only adds to the experience. It is fucking weird that this this cordyceps is just all over this building, and there's bodies just in the mushroom network there. It's everywhere. Ellie steps on a hand of one of the cooked hosts, and we hear something creaking within Independence Hall. Did you catch that? I did. Independence Hall. In some ways, there's an implication to me that when it almost sounds like the piles of the infected cluster around growths of the fungus, I almost wonder to a certain degree that once they're giving out, they almost just lay down to serve as like, you know, fertilizer so the fungus can spread. So that's my question is what is fueling the fungus? Is it air? Is it oxygen? Is it water? Is it human matter? Like what is keeping the fungus alive? Because the fungus clearly does die. In certain places, mm-hmm. Joel calls it cooked. Why? What? Something has to be fueling the fungus. We have to figure out what that is. Let's keep track. We got All some right. data. Po- it's data points. We'll put together more information. Spencer, I'm putting my white lab coat on now. Scientist Lee is in the, in the building. <laughs> yeah, the number of you, you're going straight up memento. I'm sure with just the, the cards on walls with string to explain this whole mystery. Really creepy images on this walk. That they're doing, Joel opens the door to Independence Hall and walks in. A lot of museum exhibits still all around. The building starts to shake and Tess and Ellie are thrown into the room and the roof collapses. That seems like such a video game moment. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. get back. Like, like where the code is going to, going to at this point in the code, you can't go backwards. So, boom, we, we there's have, been a cave-in. There's only so much memory to the universe, sir. We need to cut off people so we can move on to other areas. Then they hear a sound. It certainly sounds like one of them. <laughs> like, that's what that sound is. Joel has his gun up. Then they see one walk in. It's infected. It kind of looks like the other infected people we've seen. It's not too different. They try hiding first as they are hiding. Joel mouths to Ellie that the hosts can't see, but they can hear. That's a data point for all of us. They can't see, but they can hear. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Pan's Labyrinth, by the way? No. There's a creature in that, an eyeless creature, that moves exactly the same kind of way and is just the same category of unsettling. They did a good job with whoever they hired to be, you know, both the, people, the the actors they have playing these particular kind of infected, both well track the video game, but also just bring movements to life in a way I didn't think that they could do successfully. It is off and inhuman in a way that is well done. Definitely horror movie, right? And it, and it, yeah. and it does a lot of like poking the, the side of the head out, the ear out because it's listening, right? Mm-hmm. They watch one of the creatures move about and make noise. Joel puts his fingers to his lips. Shh, be quiet. Tess seems a little worried. The thing moves forward out into their line of sight. Ellie is quiet, but eventually breathes, and that's enough of a noise that it attacks. Joel shoots the thing and starts wrestling with it. He throws it off. At this point, I thought Joel might have been bit. I mean, that thing is it really was close. fucking it was close him. to him. Yeah, it comes toward him. They start running, and he eventually 
yanks down a bust of Benjamin Franklin to fall into the wall. That noise distracts the host. Extremely smart move by Joel. Oh, very so clever, smart. very quick. Nice yeah, of Ben just, Franklin to help. Basically, just take a take a, like a tennis ball and throw it against the wall on the other side of the room, and it'll run over there. That's a really smart move. You, you, you would think in like a zone like this that part of what your just itinerary of gear that you have on you would just be noisemakers. Like, if you know those things exist, just things that rattle, just throw them away from where you are. The firecrackers. Oh, yeah. A lot of firecrackers on you. Joel sits there reloading. He turns, sees it, and has a huge, bulbous head. Now, this is a different looking one. This head is doing kind of what Ellie described earlier. Sort of split. Split open and, and grew out. It's a monstrous looking thing. The, the fungus has taken over a lot more of the physicality than ever before. Like, we see people that have, like, growths on them, whatever else, or fibers coming in the mouth. This one, the entire head above the nose, or even including the nose, is just gone. You try to inch away from it, but Joel steps on glass and wah, he jumps on. This is a, this entire sequence, by the way, this whole fifteen minute sequence is is a horror movie. This is just it, horror. John. It is well done, well executed, tense, different category of horror. We had Chernobyl style horror at the opening. Now we've got there is a monster chasing me through the halls. Horror, both very well done and executed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it just seems like through this entire sequence, Joel very easily could have been bit. He he shoots the thing in the neck, then the head, and then another one comes up. As Tess hits it with an axe, then Joel shoots it in the face. Again, big bulbous head. It, he asks her if she's all right. She says, twisted ankle. But yeah, my question to you is she's clearly been bitten during this period. We never saw one of these things get close to Tess. Did this happen off screen? But yeah, the best guess is that it happened off screen. Because we see that she's wrestling with her own and that she leads one off after her uh, to get get it away from Ellie. The implication is that she was bit during that kind of separate separate moment. Because we didn't see it on screen. Yeah. Uh, it's, al it's also implied, too, that they shoot these things a few times, including once in the head, and it keeps on coming. There is an implication that once they reach this stage, they're a little bit hardier than maybe normal living things should be. But there has to be that you. Ha so if you can shoot the base of the brainstem, yeah, that has to stop the movement. Yeah, it hard shot it, to make. Like you, it, the base of the skull has to be the shot, right? Because like if that goes, if that b base of the brainstem goes. It can't move. Right. Like, that, 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 it's that, impossible to move. That is the cutting the strings from the puppet kind of shot. No matter what stage or whatever else, unless they've got like, you know, just armor effectively from gross on them. You hit that spot, anything living just drops. That's why I'm thinking a sword would be so good. That's why I'm yeah. thinking one of these samurai swords. Because you could just slice it and it would have to crumple and fall because you, you catch that brainstem in the, in the shot. All right, Yabu-san, start the training now. This will happen. <laughs> Do it. Come on. Let's get, get some samurai swords in here. Katanas! Yeah, anyway, I ask Ellie if she's all right. She says, well, I didn't shit my pants. Uh, that is a start. That's good. Then she pulls up her sleeve, and guess what? Ellie has been bit again. And she says, ah, shit. <laughs> Another Tuesday, damn it. My commute was an hour longer. Crap. Then she says something that ends up being so sad and, and tragic. She says, well, if it had to be one of us. Which is perfectly fair and unfortunately inaccurate. Tess says, let's get the fuck out of here. Uh, they get outside. On the roof, Tess is touching her ankle. Joel gives Ellie a cloth for her arm. Two, still. Yeah. He then tells her to walk over a ladder bridge. He says, I know it's scary, but she dismisses that. She's like, that was scary. This is wood. I'm good. And walks right across it. So shout out to her. Uh, you, sir, who have an imminent, all-encompassing fear of heights, would this have been more or less scary than the zombies in the halls? I'm going to tell you, in this situation... Uh, I think my fear of heights might fall away from me. I, I don't <laughs> you, you'd be able to overcome by necessity. Pretty sure. Yeah. I think I'd be in that sort of like, um, 
it's sort of like weird zen like i i could just die at any time it doesn't matter i mean mm-hmm. like I, I just i'm not sure how much i'd be valuing my life at this point i could be wrong but I, i'm not sure um this is also what i was talking about about ellie's maturity right mm-hmm. because you know i think that Joel is still thinking of her very much as a kid. And that's why he starts with the, well, I know it's scary, but you can walk. And she's just like, fuck that. I can get, I'm going. Mm -hmm. So she does have some bits of maturity when it comes to these like journey elements or these like work activities that is very adultish in my opinion. I agree. She is the way teenagers are more than almost any other age group. She is a study of complexity. Joel starts to tape up Tess's ankle, but she sort of snaps at him and says, I got it. Seemed to me, Spencer, like she wanted him not to be very close to her. I think she, she's too smart and she's too aware of the world to know that she's not dead, but she wants to be able to keep on going with this mission as long as she can. And she knows that if Joel knows, then eh, that's going to stop right then and there. But he does sense something is amiss. I didn't catch it on the first watch. I caught it on the second. But Pedro Pascal gives these little looks, starting with this scene where he looks at her like, huh? Like, why don't you want me to touch you, basically? I mean, we have to believe from what we've seen that the two of them have been together in some shape or form for years. He knows that she's off. Beyond just simply twisted ankle level of off. Joel says, what about the kid? I know the first bite didn't take, but what about the second one? She really snaps now. Potential line of the episode. How about you just take the good news? Can you do that? Yeah, Spencer. Spencer. How about you just take the good news? This is just for me now. Lee, Lee. Can you just take the good news? Can you focus on the good news? Can you focus on the guy who lost his daughters at a two now at this point? Can you accept that there are good things in a world that is a blasted hellscape? No, I can't. But I know you can't. This is just you. This is just general life question to you. Can you accept the good news? No, this is where I can do it in television. I can't do it personally. No, dear Christ. She says, can you do that? Like to think for one second, maybe we could actually win. Just go. Just go watch her. Joel shoots her another look. He really knows she's off now and he walks off. Yeah. Tess sits there thinking after he walks off. There was a lot of little clues. I got to say I didn't catch him. Did not mm-hmm. catch him on first watch, but there are a lot of clues. Great. He asked her if uh, it's every. Th- this is Joel talking to Ellie. He says, is it everything you hope for? Cause she's looking out over to the city. She says, jury's still out, but man, you can't deny that view. Agree, sir. You know, jury's still out on how fast this chicken is, but visuals on point. Tess pushes them to continue, to get there before it starts. She goes on the ladder. It's clear her ankle hurts. Joel looks at her like what is joel has been the one pushing the pace up till now now she's pushing the pace and now she's willing to do it on a bum ankle joel motions for ellie to go ahead girl doesn't have much time left yeah it feels like this whole sequence was probably beat for beat with the video game yeah 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 a lot of this is up until the end as you might suspect given how the fungus has been changed yeah they walk on they get to the old state house and i googled this this is the actual building in Boston that's being depicted. Yeah, they blew it up. It's really impressive they did that on the show. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you look at it, if you look at it, it, it looks like the old state house with a bunch of fungus on it, weirdly enough. Can you believe yeah. that? I, I'm, I'm amazed what Boston's willing to let them do for the, the filming of this. Tess asked Joel, where the fuck are they? Meaning the fireflies. They're supposed to be here. This is our, it's their point. It's their connection point. Mm-hmm. We deliver the girl, we get the battery. What the hell? <clears throat> Joel gets up and starts walking forward. They walk forward and they continue to see no one. Tess asks, what the fuck is going on? Ellie sees blood, says they went inside. Tess now goes off half cock, running inside. Joel's like, Tess, Tess, what are you doing? Like, Tess, what is wrong? They walk in and they see dead bodies everywhere. Tess says, there's got to be a radio somewhere. So she's looking around frantic for a radio. She's, 
I would say she's she's at a a very sort of uh, highly emotional sort of frantic state. She's mm-hmm. not really listening to Joel right now. Ellie asked what happened. Was it Fedra who killed them? Joel looks around, and in my humble the humble opinion of this podcast host takes in a lot of information and surveys things very quickly to come to this conclusion. Yeah, he stayed up like Dexter-level forensics, the situation to deduce. No, 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 that guy got infected, they attacked each other, this guy died here, you can see the blood splatter on this wall. It's like, okay, this guy had an alternative career path that he could have pursued in a more civilized world. It's really impressive, but it was also pretty realistic, I think, probably what happened, which is the healthy ones fought, the sick ones everyone lost. Yeah. It's a great summary. <clears throat> it's probably happened in towns, cities, He's seen homes, billions of times uh, since this thing has started where someone gets infected. You look at the infected person. They say, no, 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 don't, 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 like, don't kill me. Don't kill me. You know, and then you want to kill them because they're fucking infected. It's probably mm-hmm. something happening all over the planet. Each day, every day. Tess is still looking around and Joel asks her what the hell she's doing. Tess asks Ellie where the fireflies were going to take her. Specifically, tell me, where were you going? Ellie doesn't know. She just knows they were going west. West. Tess is just west. Okay, fuck. Tess starts looking for a map frantically, asks for Joel's help, and Joel finally snaps and says, No, Tess, it's over. We are going home. Tess snaps. It's not my fucking home. Ellie looks at her, as does Joel. My question for you is, is this when Ellie knows? Because Ellie knows before she says something. Ellie... She has all the information and she's logically deducing it. She's just not ready to accept it yet, is my interpretation. My question for you. Giving the two characters, Ellie and Joel, truth serum, who knows it first? Joel knew it probably first because he knows Tess. He also I think he also has more more intimate exposure to how the infection works. I think he's just really not emotionally ready to see another member of his family die from this. I think he's in denial, but I think he knew it probably back when she wouldn't let him tape his angle. Yeah, it's like, eh, eh, being cagey, hiding yourself, distancing yourself. This isn't you, and man, have I seen this in a lot of people before. She says, I'm staying. I mean, our luck has to run out sooner or later, which is true. Ellie says, fuck, she's infected. Joel just looks at her. Tess looks at Joel. He says, show me. She goes to take a step forward. He backs up. Mm -hmm. Now she's she's the mushroom. One of them. Now she's one of them. She shows him her shoulder, and it is bit and very, very infected. She says, oops, right? It, that, that happened we can, fast. We can see how fast it progressed. This is already starting to, you know, fungus over. She's a, yeah, and she's having physical, you know, manifestations. She, you can see her infection. trembling. She, she, she has tremors. Yeah, she asks Ellie to take her bandage off. She does. At this point, both me and my wife thought she was going to try to do some sort of weird blood transfusion or something, but that's not <laughs> what was happening. No more grounded show. Weird life. No, no, she was just looking at the wound and. Comparing the two wounds, it is clear that Ellie's got something Tess doesn't have because Ellie's wound is almost like healing. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tess is obviously is infected and she looks like a mushroom. Uh, no, notable moment there for the acting on the part of uh, the actress who plays Tess. Well, I'll look up here in a second. But when she lets go of Ellie's arm, her hands are trembling almost to the point she can't control them. And not just she the level of. Yeah, she pulls them behind herself. Looks like a proper drunk there. Looks like a, a real, a real, a real drunk with the handshaking and then trying to hide the handshaking. A bit, a bit of DT's moment there. Sure. Yeah. This is real. Joe. She screams. She says, she's fucking real. Tess handshaking. Tries to hide it. She says, I need you to get her to Bill and Frank's. Joel says, no, they'll take her off your hands. They'll handle it from here. Joel keeps saying, no, 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 no. They're not going to take her from me. Just says they will, because you will convince them. Tess says, you will. I've never, here is a wonderful sequence. Spencer. Mm-hmm. She says, yes, you will. 
I never ask you for anything not to feel the way I felt. So there, there we got that history that they are yeah. partners, but I think that she wanted something romantic and he didn't. New, new line that wasn't in the game, but I like that. He started to, to basically stop her from saying that. She said, shut the fuck up. I don't have time. This is your chance. You get her there. You keep her alive. And you said everything right. All the shit we did. That's another loaded line about their history. What, what, what did they do? Please say yes, Joel, please. One of them wakes up. Joel shoots it right in the head. As he does, you can see the fungus crawl up and almost take the body. Connecting it to the fungi network. Which, again, this isn't in the video game. This is a change. I love how well they've integrated this in as a change. So so often for like when they're adapting something, they make a massive change, but then don't adjust it how they would need to to work it into the rest of the plot. The fact that this is giant fibers underneath the ground is new to the world, but they make it believable because they kind of connect it in these ways to the broader the broader plot and story. Yeah, I mean, it's fibers underground as opposed to it being airborne, right? But, yeah, I mean, no, they, they, but, no, no spores anymore, yeah. Right, but the implication of that is that it can actually talk to each other. It's a fungi network, yes. and, and it happens here because the guy gets shot and then, I guess, transfers the information that there was a noise, there was something to get to. Activity. And once it gets connected... A lot of these things get up and start running toward that noise. Yeah, it seemingly like that entire herd that we saw arriving on the ground earlier is now coming to their front door. And the actress's name is Anna Torv, and she does really damn well with this scene. She It's a wonderful performance by her this episode, I agree. Joel goes out, looks outside, he closes the door, says all of them are coming. Maybe yeah. a minute, maybe a minute. Just knocks off the lid to the fuel barrels, throws off the grenades. She says, I'm going to make sure you guys get out of here. She says, this line... Do you have it, Spencer? Do you want to say it? You want me to say it? Joel, save who you can save. Oh! Great ass line. Great line. That is something else, man. Because, you know, I think that when these things, these types of, this type of media is effective. It's effective when the story is reduced down to something that is relatable to your life in the world that you are now. Yes. Save who you can save can be extrapolated in your life to anywhere. Anytime. Do the kindness you can do. Do the favor you can do. Pay for the thing you can pay for. Help the person you can help. On and on and on. It's basically commit the effort to the thing in front of you. Right? Yeah. And that's what she's saying. This this girl is in front of you. You say you, you do what's in front of you. And it's a kindness not only to the girl, it's a kindness to Tess. This is her last wish. This is her last hope. This is her desperate desire that her death, her life has meaning that they were doing something that could make a difference that could potentially fix all this shit maybe hopefully desperately please let this matter please let my idealism have some degree of validation and to joel that's a foreign language but he's caring enough to try i'll say this no line nothing that tess has ever said to joel has made him giddy up and go that fast but Joel save who you can save does he yanks L by the way, Ellie with now seven. Mm. It's a seven. It's an For, artificial seven. He has taken te- where Tess was at and put it into his own body in action for this moment. Yeah. He grabs Ellie, takes off. She's screaming the really funny stuff. Oh, so, get off me. You fucker. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to leave. So she doesn't want to leave her. She doesn't want to leave Tess. But you know, the reality is Tess is dead anyway. Mm. And we see this shot of Tess standing there in the hallway alone with the sun shining in over her. Definitely a Christ-like image. It's the I died so you can live type of thing. 
Mm-hmm. We get the, the Christ image of her with the arms out, with the sun in the back, and she's about to sacrifice herself so that others may live. That's absolutely what they're going for there. Mm-hmm. She stands there looking around, knowing this is the end. The door starts being not, but hit, knocked, knocked, hitting again. And the things come in. They start running. Tess starts trying to light the lighter. And anybody who's had one of those fucking Zippo lighters knows, good Lord, right when you're right not at the when you end. Need. Right when you're at the end of the butane or whatever. Uh, fuck, it sucks. Her kerosene. Over and over again, she tries. It's notable they're not going at her. Like no, previ- they smell her. Pre- previously, we've seen that whenever the infected see you know a potential host, they are on them like you know immediately. They're running past her and searching for other parts of the room before they even notice she's there. So here's focus my question: on the fact she's there, we know that they can hear and can't see. We that that got abundantly what, illustrated. Well, we know that once they reach a certain stage, at least we don't know as well for the for the ones that are at these earlier stages. It's just not been said as much. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and extrapolate and say that if you've already you as the human have died, the thing is in you. You can well, hear you can hear you can't see. Notably, but my question is can you, they smell? What information do you have, sir? What can you deduce from these things? I disagree well, it, with your read, but I understand it. Why why do you disagree with my read? I mean, that's that's what he said. I mean, that the, the people there didn't look like a fungus necessarily that people well, were attacking them for the for the sole purpose that you said that they were dead once they're infected we know that they're not we know that they that they are that they, they if you shoot them and they die that stops them but pre, up until that point they are living in some shape or form so you're saying that any of these things running is alive it's disturbingly yes to what to the point of debating level of still active consciousness inside them infested and controlled so that's my but that's my distinction is that it's alive as a mushroom. It's not alive as the human it was. Like there is, there is a difference there. Fair, very fair. And I think, I think like with ones that we saw in the, um, the independence hall and the museum, I think we may have crossed more fungus than human at that point. Yeah. Anyway, I, I sure. think my, my question here, I can tell by you, I, I can tell I'm wrong. <laughs> by how you're answering but I, I i my my thought there was that maybe they could smell her or something well, this is a point of where i'm only relying on video game mechanics i don't actually know the answer of this they can see you it seems in the game but the show is doing its own thing with it trying to make it more realistic so it we know that they can hear that's the only thing we know everything else just interpretation on scenes i can't guide you more there really I just, yeah i thought they could smell her and that's why i thought i thought that, that she smelled like one of them anyway one guy comes over to her and Starts to put the fungus in her mouth. Starts to French kiss. Starts to fungus French kisser. It's it, really creepy. This is a very uncomfortable scene. It's even uncomfortable with how they filmed it, where they purposely filmed it with almost like romantic framing and lighting, just to make it all the more twisted. Uh, even though it's like the camera angle associated with it, it is meant to be almost. <sighs> There's almost a little bit invasive. of like affection, of invasive, invasive level of affection attached to this, of where this isn't violent, but it is all the more pervasive and disturbing for the fact that it's not violent as such. And she's allowing this to happen because it buys her more time to try to get the lighter to go. She's also because probably she, scared out of her fucking mind, too. Yeah, but if she'd have swung on this thing, it would have just, you know, Ripped attacked her. her. She, she wouldn't have been able. So she it bought her more time to finally get the lighter to light. When she does, she drops it. Boom! The whole place goes up in a blast. R.I.P. Tess. Yeah, good run. Yep. Good run, Tess. R.I.P. Rip, rip. She had a great run. (laughs) This is another reason of where I'm legitimately not trying to tell you how this works, because I don't know, because this scene is completely different in the video game. In the video game, she's killed by government's forces at roughly this moment. It's not by the zombies or whatever. whatever Has she already been bit? 
She already had been bit, but she's staying behind to effectively buy time with respect to the government who's actively chasing them at this moment. So it's the Where, government chasing them, not the zombies. In the exactly. Game. With it being the zombies, with it being that kind of moment of the zombie coming over to her, we don't directly see her, even her death in the video game. So all this is new. I can only interpret this to the same degree you have. It almost feels like they're trying to welcome her into the network or assist and speed up the process of her being part and among them, I guess. Yeah. I don't know, but it is all sorts of creepy and uncomfortable and violating. Yeah. It's the emperor just yelling at Luke, like, welcome to the Sith, <laughs> basically. That's, that's what happens. Welcome to the dark side. You get a little fungus in the mouth, but uh, shout out to her for allowing more her for her last moments to be that uncomfortable in the service of the two other individuals. She was trying to save, save, who you can save everybody. And she does. And we get the final shot <clears throat> where Ellie is breathing hard up and down, up and down. And I got to say, there's been a lot of people speculating about the skills of Bella Ramsey, her acting skills, not liking maybe some of the over the top, you know, yelling and screaming and sarcastic stuff that she's doing as a character. I personally think all of that is on purpose, but yeah, I, I, anybody who is questioning her acting, I would just tell you to look at this last scene because I, I felt like there was a lot in her look that she gave that Ellie will not allow herself to cry, mm, but, but she's there, still feeling the emotion. There's tears welling and she's feeling it and she's looking to Joel to try to figure out like, are you as hurt as I am by this? Like what, what's going, I just felt like there was 10 things going on in that look that Ellie gave at the end of that episode. I thought it was a really good job by Bella Ramsey. Yeah. I've, I felt some, some people have accused her of like being overacting or being over the top or it doesn't come across as real to which is I've already kind of summarized. That's I think kind of with a point. I think that's yeah, what she's acting for right here. She's playing a character and that character is it herself not comfortable in her own skin right now. She's trying to put on faces to fit in with everybody else. And it's not coming across as real except in moments like this when she's willing to let her guard down. All right. So that's the end of the recap. Episode two, Infected. Spencer, any concluding thoughts here as we wrap recap before we jump into our segments? I, I, again, I thought this was a very effective episode. It was meant to be a horror episode. It was meant to be tense. It was meant to set the, the first tendrils, as it were, of a relationship. Tendrils! Form. <laughs> Look at you. Uh, I'm here for it. Um, and fun. I think it did all those things very well. I love the added scenes they put into the video game, particularly the cold open. I love the changes that they made. In some ways, I prefer them to the video game. And some of the problems that we'll discuss once we're done about the video game at war at times between its wonderful story and its gameplay that doesn't always fit into those themes. I think the show's effectively, it, it's hitting that balance better, and I'm really enjoying watching it on the screen. I see. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, I mean, look, it's well done. You know, if you're watching it, it's hard not to care that Tess dies. It, it, is the chicken going faster than the Honda Civic? No. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, Chicken's it, just it's, on the track. Yeah, there's still 7 billion people dead or whatever. Like, I mean, it's still, it's all, all apropos of nothing, but it's, if you are creating a show that is all apropos of nothing, it's as well done as it can be. And I, and I can't deny that. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised it's getting really high ratings. You're, I think it, we have I think forced it's you out. Of, we have forced you out of your preferred medium when it comes to the show and you're struggling to keep up. In the same way that there's the cordyceps that does the thing to the ant mm -hmm. in our world. And then there's the next iteration that ends this world. I think this show is the next iteration of Walking Dead. I think it's what Walking Dead hoped to be, wanted to be, and it's jacked way up, and it's much better, much more better technically done, acted, written, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about the production value of the show. I'm gonna complain that they chose a genre I don't like. That's it. Hey, it's not TV. It's HBO. Whoa. 
<laughs> Everyone can hear that damn noise. <laughs> All right, let me let me get some best lines of the episode. You got some for me? I got a few for you. Uh, the entire opening exchange between the mycologist and the general, which I'll Woo. recite a little bit here, a bit of who bitter? Don't know. So they're still out there. Are any other workers missing? And hesitate. Fourteen. Uh, Ibu Ratnit, we brought Ratnit, we brought you here to help us keep this from spreading. We need a vaccine or medicine. Her response, I have spent my life studying these things, so please listen carefully. Mm. There is no medicine. Mm. There is no vaccine. So what do we do? Bomb. Start bombing. Bomb this city and everyone in it. Mm. Excuse me, if someone could please drive me home, I would like to be with my family. Dear Christ, is that powerful. I mean, wonderful acting on the part of those foreign actors they brought in for this role in this moment. Great, great part of the general, too, is his horrified face throughout all of this. Pristine scene. Excellent. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Uh, line from Joel, which you emphasized as just being so perfectly embodiment of his philosophy and view on the world. You need to stop talking about this kid like she's got some kind of life in front of her. Whew. As you said, that has just pounds of baggage behind it far outside of this immediate moment and this immediate possibly infected kid. Uh, Tess, great line here. I'm going to talk to you like you're an adult, okay? Great way to start a conversation with a teenage, with a, with a you know, a pre-adult anyway. <laughs> yeah, tighten up, basically. Yeah. Joe and I aren't good people. We're doing this for, we're doing this for us because apparently you're worth something. But we don't know what you're worth if we don't know what we have. So answer my question. It's an effective line that actually gets, really, Ellie talking with Tess on a level that she doesn't reach with Joel this episode because Tess is trying to meet her as a peer for lines like this, or at least speak to her like an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, line, Correct. Funny line. Can I have a gun? Absolutely not. No. Okay, Jesus, fine. I'll have to throw my fucking sandwich at them, I guess. Funny line. Mm-hmm. Uh, fly from Tess that you emphasized. They're connected. Uh, from, that's, that's Ellie. Tess, more than you know. The fungus also grows underground. Long fibers like wires, some of them stretching over a mile. Now, you step on a patch of cordyceps in one place, and you can wake a dozen infected from somewhere else. Now, they know where you are. Now they come. You're not immune to being ripped apart. You understand? It's important. I'm trying to keep you alive. I love that exchange. I love what's conveyed by that exchange of what she's feeling for this girl, protecting if she already has for her. Makes you ponder Tess's backstory in a way that we don't don't get to see on screen that she's so immediately bonding and connecting with this child. Agreed. Uh, from Tess, how about you take the good news? Can you do that? Like to think for once, maybe we could actually win. Just just go, go and watch her. She's mm. speaking from a place of knowing she doesn't have long left, and she needs to have some hope with all this. See, I see, I see that in retrospect, but in the time, at the first viewing through, I just thought she just finally reached a breaking point with Joel's cynicism, defeatism, yeah. cynicism, P- defeatism. Adventure. Defeatism is a wonderful way to put that. I like that. Uh, Tess again. Yes, you will. I I never ask you for anything. Not to feel the way I felt. No. Oh. Not, not to shut the fuck up because I don't have time. This is your chance. You get her there. You keep her alive, and you set everything right. All the shit we did. Please say yes, Joel. Please. Powerful fucking line. In, in separate lines that deserve its own mention, followed up with, Joel, save who you can save. Wonderful. Actually, a lot better nominees this week than last week, I think. 
But <laughs> I try every now and then. So we're going to do – well, not not you. I'm talking about the writing of the show. <laughs> Judging me. It's like you're giving me <laughs> a two gracious. out of ten here. <laughs> wow. I know. I'm talking about the writing of the show. So I'm uh, going to award an, uh, an honorable mention this week. Honorable mention this week is bomb. That's it. One word. Bomb. Powerful. Because it Powerful. put a chill down my spine. It's just – I did that mm-hmm. thing. And best line of the episode it always was going to be everybody knew. People who didn't watch the show knew. That's how obvious it is. Joel, save who you can save. I feel like that might be the epithet, maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, Perfect. Perfect <laughs> way to say that. Slogan, but maybe what, what goes on the graveyard. Epithet, the uh, dirge, yes. This is what this is. Yeah, of the show. I mean, it's it's really, it's the moniker. It's put it on a t-shirt. Joel, save who you can save. More than Shout you know, out. yeah. Shout out. Uh, shall we go into other segments, sir? Let's go into other segments. Let's do familial moment of the episode. Now, I was doing the counter on Joel Ellie. I didn't get higher than two on their natural interaction. <laughs> so I'm going to say that none of their interactions for me is familial moment of the episode. I, I'm going to mention them just, I agree, none of them match. But just sure. a, a couple that are notable. Um, Joel calling her a smart ass and walking into the knee-deep water. If they cared more about each other, that would be very much a dad moment right there. Uh, and we same, know he's capable of some killer dad jokes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, same time of saying just immediately almost offended, absolute not when she wants a gun. I can picture him as a dad saying the same thing to his daughter about, hey, can I try it? Can I hold that 45 you got there? No. Uh, yes. And then, as you noted previously, calling her a weird kid with no small amount of humor attached to it. There's growth here, and it's not just forced upon him by Tess. But you were going to go into, I think, some test moments, weren't you? Yeah, I was going test moments. And I was going tests with Ellie, specifically, standing, looking at the blades of grass in the wind, the, the fungus moving, and the, the, just the weirdness of all that, and trying to give her a sort of cordyceps for dummies, mm-hmm. little some, tutorial some well-earned on how this wisdom. works. I kind of called it like street knowledge, basically, of how this thing works. I think that was, I mean, that information is prized. Her time is prized. Her effort is prized. I don't think she gives that to people she doesn't care about. <clears throat> so I think that that's really telling of how Tess feels about Ellie. And I think part of it, probably the majority of it, is that she actually did look at her sore and thought, huh? Like, how how did her sore, like, we've never seen that before. Like, a sore that clearly she's bitten and, and covered up. Like, so... We know she has, like, hope for the future, right? So that's part of it. But I think another part of it is she started to be charmed by this little girl. Mm-hmm. She Fair does like so. her. And so, I, you know, that scene is pretty important. Should be on the familial scene of the episode, Powerless. But I think that the number one clearly is at the end when Joel and Tess are talking. And, and you put it so well that I'll just kick it to you to, to explain. But it's when Tess is sort of trying to say, like, don't make my life mean nothing, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it all factors into what is a well-done hour of television to show a relationship growing very quickly, but very believably, of where we get several moments of Tess bonding with Ellie that don't feel forced, that feel like she's going through a certain degree of arc that's coming from a place of a history we don't know and understand, but it feels like it's a natural growth over the course of an hour, over the course of basically a day together, that is still well-sold, that we care about, that we understand that they care about each other with what time they've spent together. I think the scene of the advice is great in that regard, and some general protectiveness of Ellie. Even just the earlier scene about asking her how old she is, 14. Wow, well, you've got some balls on you, sister. Already yes. they're starting to bond and grow. Starting to regard. build, for sure. And I think it very much ends with, 
there's almost a feeling it's not only towards Ellie, but mankind that Tess still has. Or Tess still thinks that there's hope, still thinks that mankind can be saved, still thinks that there's a solution out there that humanity can continue on. I think Joel maybe lost that on the day of, but he certainly has lost it now. And she's trying to still... she. It's like she's been around Joel with the hope this entire time that these are smoldering coals that she can eventually get some life out of still, that she can still make a fire burn in this guy once more. But she just doesn't have time to nourish it anymore. She's just straight up throwing some kerosene on this, saying, I need you to do this for me now. I need you to care for a half fucking set. That is, that is a level of familial care for mankind that I will give full credit for in Tess here, even beyond just simply Ellie. Yeah, I agree. I think that has to be the familial moment of the episode. So Tess going out with a bang, but also going out, going out very high on the segments power ranking. She's very up there. She's the line of the episode and she's got familial scene of the episode. Spencer, our in-house counsel. Do we have any ethical questions this week? Well, I have to hear to present to the board because we've had some HR complaints lately. So we need what? to vet the what? ethics of these particular things. It's part of a new policy going forward that we're going to require oh, nine hours of mandatory things. training for every employee every day because of what what senior what what one senior executive did. Uh, so we get three that I think are more background aspects of the apocalypse kind of thing, and then one I actually really want to talk about. Okay. Uh, in terms of ethical quandaries characters go for, we have Ellie just straight up ask Joel two of them about basically, should you feel bad about killing the infected? Or she asks him, do you feel bad when you kill these people knowing that they are either once alive or maybe horrifyingly are still alive? No one really knows for sure on that point, I don't think. But these these were at least were people that are still moving about. They still look like they have the faces of loved ones, people you cared about. Lee, I ask you as a member and representative of the board, should they have any ethical qualms whatsoever on killing the infected as Ellie offers to, offers as a question to Joel here? Absolutely not. Go on, sir. Explain your position. I don't think you really need to. It's like obviously just from They've a self-defense seven standpoint. Bil- this thing has killed seven billion people. Let's just say seven. Sure. Killed Seven's seven, a good round it's number. It's killed seven billion people. You're losing. Like you – you. <laughs> it, well, forget that you're losing. You've lost. You have ample. You have ample evidence that this thing is going to kill you if it has a chance. Mm-hmm. You have seven billion examples of it. You have no choice. Like you have to. It. It. If there was any possible way to be friendly with the people who are infected, for them not to try to kill you, not try to make you part of the fungi network, if we've seen any implication that any of that is remotely possible. Sure, then we, let's have that conversation. But none of that, none of that's happening. It's just blindly attacking and killing and creating more and more in the fungi network. You have no choice but to kill these things. I, I think as soon as you're bit and it's clear that you're infected, if you still live in the world where there is no cure, you have to kill the person. That, that includes me. If I, this all happens, I get bit, Spencer, right in the brainstem. With the katana blade that you're going to have, right in the brainstem. Don't hesitate. Don't question it. You have to do it. No, don't worry. We'll be with our friend Doug. He will off you without an issue. I will have. He will have killed me before I got there. <laughs> First moment you twisted the ankle, just down, dead, yeah, burned weak. on the road. But you, you, there's the necessary follow up. Sarah, love of your life, is infected. How long do you wait before you kill her? 
From an ethical or emotional Listen, standpoint, everyone Listen, to judge. You're not going to talk me into the governor of Walking Dead keeping his. This is what I'm trying to go for. Is there just. Is, no. Uh, uh, she loves off with her head. Let her Sorry. be one. Off with her head. And by the way, do the same thing to me. She's got to do the same thing to me. Okay. Got write to, to. Got to. I would encourage everyone to write this into your wills just so there's no debate about this going forward. Make it part of your power of attorney. You have to. You. I mean, there. And it's almost more important that you do it to the person that you're closest to. Yeah. Because that's the one that you're most likely to allow to continue to live to the point that it actually kills somebody else. You you have got to do it. No okay. So we, we, we have cleared them. The board is approved. There is no ethical issues whatsoever with killing the infected, including whether or not they are loved ones. Even if yes. whether they are necessarily fully reached an infected stage yet, it's part of survival in this world. Yes. Follow up. Ellie also asked uh, Joel about killing the guard. Which, as you noted, Joel seemed like he was ready to go into and talk about that to a certain degree, but we don't see it. I asked the board, what are the ethics with respect to Joel straight up beating in that guard's skull? Like, you know, wedding in House of the Dragon style. I mean, he martyred him. He certainly he, did. He did so to save Ellie. And he did so for his own selfish purposes at that point. I don't think he's he's he was at a zero on the Ellie scale at that point. But he was at a 10 on the PTSD scale with that. Sure. But he murdered him. But I think yeah. that when you're in this world and you have Fedra doing what Fedra's doing, you got the fireflies operating the way they are. You have the, the cordyceps network, the fungi network that is a, this imminent threat to all humanity. Everybody has limited resources, limited time. I think you, you're probably going to be forced with some situations where you may have to kill somebody. Killing them is still murder, but I think you have to contextualize everything. Joel did it within the context of that situation. Yes, it's murder. Um, are, are you suggesting that ethics are cultural and they can themselves vary by the state of the world? So ethics are, of course, cultural. But they are also very contextual when you are faced with the apocalypse. Sure. <laughs> That's why we're having That's, this segment. What I also mean by cultural, <laughs> yeah, is that the circumstances matter. Yeah, it certainly matters. It matters an awful lot. So, yes, Joel murdered the guy. Would I be too beat up about it if I was traveling with Joel? Probably not. But yeah, I, I did murder him. I, I, it'd be a level of I wouldn't beat up on Joel necessarily so much for killing the guy. I would beat up. I would not. I would be concerned for Joel of what led to him killing the guy. It's like this revealed something about you oh, that sure. is on edge that we need to talk about. The murder, you know, that's a Tuesday. But what the emotional state where you were in when you were doing the murder, we need to unpack. Well, it also connects to you know. Jess was talking about how people were scared of him. Mm -hmm. he's, he's done this of, before. He's set up as this sort of Batman of the underground, right? That he, everybody's scared that <laughs> he's, he's just going to hop out of the shadows and kill you. And he probably has done this type of thing before. And he's got extreme trauma. He's deal But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, at this point, every single living person has extreme trauma that they've dealt with because they've seen the end of the world. Mm -hmm. That's extreme trauma. So uh, you're going to see some shit like this. If you're alive, you've got survivor's guilt at this point. If you've been born into the world, you've got survivor's guilt at this point. If you've looked out on the fucking freeway and just seen the collection of cars, you have trauma. Like, it's it's a mm. fucked up situation. People are going to be doing some sideways shit. I think you got to give them a little bit of a little bit of a leeway, especially when he's protecting the young girl who might be the savior of the world. Okay, so I, I think we're leaning towards not necessarily that killing other individuals is a fundamental good in the same way as, or a fundamental necessity in the same way it is killing infected, but under circumstances we may dub it, dub it justifiable or excusable homicide based on, you know, needs, circumstances, threats. 
this is the board's conclusion on this matter? This is a, here's here's a here's a legal phrase. You want a legal phrase for you? I'm here for it. It's an immaterial homicide. Ooh, there's a unique term right there. Yeah, it's just sort of like insignificant. The world's ended. Exactly. Like, there's no law. It's all fucking hell breaking loose. Like, yeah, he killed a guy, but like, Jesus, like, what What do you want? Like, what are you going to do? Be judge and jury? I mean, it's clear that the only thing Fedra would do is hang him. That's all they got. You do a parking ticket, Fedra's going to hang you. So Fedra's killing people too. The irony of you not liking this world, but you've got a Julian mindset attached to it means you might actually survive better. I'm really appreciating the irony of that. Yeah, maybe. I, we, I, the first thing I, I established in episode one is that I'd be one of the first ones dead. Maybe I wouldn't because I would. I, I certainly, if I saw this thing go down, I would have no problem killing anybody. Spencer, love you. Your head's going right off with my katana blade if you have one of those bites. It's but what, gone. But what are the theoretical chance that I might, you know, not be a normal infected? Yeah. No. What What if I'm the Ellie? You don't know. I Look, I'm just the guy who said to the listener, if you think... Your Joel, your ego is out of control, right? Like if you think, <laughs> thank you for reaching the point Ellie. I wanted you to reach. <laughs> if you if you think your loved one is Ellie, your ego is just too fucking high. Your your loved one's not Ellie. Your loved right. one is is Tess. You got to cut her head off. I appreciate the conclusions of the board. I'm now desperately concerned about working here from an ethical standpoint, but I've got one remaining question left. Yeah. Early ethical question we have presented in this episode: If you are confronted by this scenario. Is the opinion of our mycologist that BOM is the only viable means at all and ever ethically justifiable? Is is there a Godzilla threshold by which mass eradicating a city to control this is something that they could have or should have done? I'm going to kick it back to you. I'm going to make you answer this one first. I answered the last two first. You should answer this one first. As this Spencer, is, you're not you're not the guy asking the questions anymore. You're the guy answering the question. As Spencer, what you, would you say? You've completely changed the game up on me. I appreciate the power of the board to do this, and also hate you in a way. I'll write in my journal later. Um, this I, this, this one is of a many fa- pages where you said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Every fucking Tuesday. I wonder why that happens. Who knows? <laughs> I hate Lee Underwood. Um, th- th- it's a fascinating question to unpack from so from a purely utilitarian standpoint. If it works. It's almost hard not to justify it. It is the classic trolley problem of, do you pick the lesser evil? Do you save lives where you can save lives, even if it by your actions you are specifically costing lives? I think it is inherently immoral. I, almost in a way, this is like the divide between moral and ethical, where I almost feel like it can be justified in a way that ethics can and morality struggles with. Of where, if you have that power, if you have that perspective... It, and you're, if you're adopting a utilitarian mindset to it, almost anything can be justified, which is horrific, but logical in a way that lo- that cold math is. I feel like one, if you're confronted with something that is that all-encompassing evil, it is almost unethical to not consider those possibilities, to not be willing to engage in those actions. And I find that a horrifying statement I my part to make. Because I was the one that was like, you know, Let's go back to Game of Thrones. I was the one that was trumpeting Davos saying, what's one boy's life compared to the kingdom? And Davos saying everything, and my heart just broke with love of the man. And at the same time, I'm saying, hey, this is my college is saying that, you know, we should nuke the city. Not that I, not that I think, Indo- I don't think Indonesia is a nuclear power, but, you know, bomb the shit out of the city. I'm going, eh, 
you know, that's a reason, that's a fair enough possible read or scenario to solve the situation. It's just fascinating what these circumstances force upon you to, to think about. So let's be clear. Davos didn't believe in Melisandre and her magic. That, and her that's the and her divide. Yes. So he didn't believe that killing the one person would save the kingdom. So that's a he, big part of it. He was also, so, he was also probably two, right because Melisandre's full of shit, but separate issue. Two, two things about this that strike out, that, that stick out to me. One is governing a people as the chief executive is a bigger deal than most people realize sure. because of situations just like this. It, it requires a certain type of person that we all probably aren't and, and probably shouldn't be. It should require a very special person to be able to get a situation like this and to be able to make a logical decision. Cause the fact of the matter is most people, if you, you made them president of Indonesia and you gave them this, this question would not be able to make a rational decision. No, they wouldn't be able to even sort through it or deal with it. So it takes a very, so being the president of a country, being the chief executive and ruling a people, you know, in a, in an executive role is fucking hard mm-hmm. and it requires really tough fucking decisions. My second part is it really, the, the answer to if you do this or not boils down 100% to me on if you really believe this lady. Like, yeah. Do you really believe her? Because I, I think it, he's, it, I think the general is scared enough that he believes her. I think he almost is afraid that she's going to say that. But belief is often a spectrum. You yeah. have to believe this lady a hundred percent. You can't be inclined to believe her. You can't think 95% she's probably right because to do something like this, which is like Truman times a million, you've got to fucking <laughs> yeah. be so sure you've got to be a hundred percent underline it, bold it, italicize it, that this lady's right. But if what? you truly do 100% believe that this lady's right, you have a moral obligation as the executive of that what? city to bomb everyone there. What? I agree. I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but I believe that. Well, I mean, it's the curse of that mindset, too, because this is the famous example of the last case scenario, the worst case scenario. It's something you would never do unless you have no other choice. The problem with that is there's never going to be a scenario where, where you have no other choice, just mentally. You're always going to have another choice. You're always going to have another scenario. You're always going to have another thought process. You're always going to have a doubt. So it means practically that no one would ever do this because – it's the it's the last thing that anybody would do. And by that point, it's too late. By that point, when it was a possibility, it's already long since lapsed. It's I like the, to think there's some people who would do it. I, I, can't, I have to believe that there are some what, people who could who could who could pull the trigger and do I, it. because it's the right thing to do. It, we, yeah. we we have the we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that was the right thing to do. Uh, cl- classic movie moment with Spencer. Have you ever? I'm, I, I, I really don't mean to be pedantic when I ask these kind of questions, but have you ever seen the movie Failsafe? No. Uh, Old classic black and white, you know, risk of nuclear Armageddon kind of movie. For those who actually want to watch it, it's a great movie. Henry Fonda, great, great cast, great, great, great story. Had the misfortune of coming out the same year as two other nuclear, nuclear apocalyptic films, so it's kind of been forgotten. So I'm going to spoil the shit out of the next minute. Feel free to skip that, but it's kind of on point. Um, I think but, people will hang in there with you. I don't think I, they're worried about spoil, being spoiled on that one. 1960s movie, it has been a while. Um, it, the movie's about the subject of a general goes rogue who commands a nuclear fleet of bombers and sends them to go bomb the Soviet Union. It's the serious version of Dr. Strangelove for our audience who have seen that. Um, and they're able to stop almost all the bombers except for one that they realize is most likely going to successfully bomb Moscow. And they've been working with the Russians and trying to get the Russians to help to try to shoot these down, turn these things around, but they've nothing they can do about this one. So the President of the United States basically tells the Moscow premier that 
if Moscow is hit, I will proportionally nuke New York myself so as to avoid a nuclear war. I will trade that so as to make this happen. And the room is flabbergasted that you even consider that. But it's the same kind of logic you just said of, what's the worst case scenario and what's your willingness to do it? His objective is to hold off nuclear war. What he has to pay for that is is an equivalent city if Moscow is nuked. So the end of the film is, he's on the phone with the ambassador in Moscow. He hears the line shriek as it melts from the nuclear fire going off, which is a very memorable sound that just echoes out the building. And he orders his troops, he orders his his generals to, okay, drop a nuke on New York right now, even though our, even though my family is there right now for it. Because it's the only thing that would stop Russia from doing anything. Full on retaliation, yeah, is to ha- to pay that kind of price in recognition for the mea culpa. That movie and that scenario, the, the president's willing to do that. I would struggle to imagine that either bombing Jakarta or doing that could happen in real life, just because I think logically or emotionally people would be searching for any other way of trying to avoid that kind of scenario, any other option for carrying that responsibility. Because imagine it works. Imagine it stops it. You don't have to justify yourself to the world that you that just survived because of you. Who doesn't well, believe you? you, you? So you do, so you you do it with the full knowledge. You're going to be lynched. You be, you'll be killed, and that history will remember you as one of the worst people ever. Mm-hmm. But you will have literally like you'll have done the thing that like i, I don't guys you'll have done the jesus thing right like you have done you literally will have done you murdered that. for our sins you really will have you really no nah, not murdered but you really will have sacrificed being first off the conscious what what has to do to your, your conscious yeah, your humanity your, your what they're going to do to you on your person and then mm. your 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 place in history is the worst person of all time you will have sacrificed all that to have saved the world i think you I, with all that being said i think that if tomorrow the same situation happens and joe biden 100% believes the lady mm. who's telling him this then he's got to nuke new york he's got to do it i think you have to that's the only thing. If you if you believe her, mm-hmm. you got to do it. So I I don't I don't sh- I I guess what my my I'm talking around it, but I, what I'm saying is I don't think executives should shy away from that type of decision, even if it gets to that level, because they're the, the at this point when we have something like this, there that that sort of extreme measure is the only thing that potentially could save humanity. It's either that or fundamentally change what your concept of is of winning. It's either you. Nuke the scenario and hope it works, and God help you if it doesn't. The worst case scenario is it doesn't work. Then you're just left with that and justifying yourself afterwards. That it- honestly, if you, if you, if you, which I don't know how, why you would be, but if you're in this situation and you really, really do care about what happens to you personally, it not working might be the best thing ever because, like, then everybody would go, "Well, there's a, he obviously had a reason." He for tried. Doing that. He, yeah, tried. he tried. Exactly. You'd be like a hero. Notably in Failsafe, for example, the guy who's flying the plane, who is the senior general, basically says, nobody else touched the plane. I'm the only one that's going to bear this sin, partly because he knows his own family is there, too. And he drops the bomb and immediately takes cyanide. It's necessary. He knows he has to do it, but he can't live with it. Yeah. I mean, I I know, like, in my example, right, like, Biden would have to do it if he believed this lady, if he actually believed 
what she's telling him, which is that this thing will end humanity and there's no, no chance of anything. I mm-hmm. think you have to do it. And then, you know, let the yep. chips fall, chips fall where they may. So let that be uncle Lee out there to the kids. If you're thinking about running for president, let that one sink in that you might have to make that decision one day. So maybe don't, maybe don't, maybe, maybe the entire fucking planet shouldn't run for president, right? Like yeah, maybe, it, maybe it should be limited to just a collection of certain astute people. Yeah. It's, it's not just about self aggrandizement. It is picking somebody who is willing to kick the dog in a way that will be remembered throughout history for the sake of the greater good. And dear Christ, save that person. Could you do it if I, you're president tomorrow? I don't know. Truly, truly not. I mean, it's one of those things of where it is from the scenario we have painted the necessary thing to do. I truly don't know about myself whether I'd be able to push that button. Yeah, that's a good, honest answer. Okay, th- this ethical segment of the week was really a lot of fun. See, and I, look, I, it, it's not lost on me the appeal of these types of things, right? Because sure. you get into conversations about this. You get to have these types of conversations. All of that is fun. But I find the hour of television, even though it's so well done and should win a bunch of golden globes, golden globes or Emmys, it should win all that stuff. I still find it somewhat boring for me to watch because I, the stakes aren't there for me. When it, when, that sounds kind of crazy. When, when it comes to chicken on a track, you'd much be preferred to be in the sands eating a chicken sandwich. Chicken parm, if possible. If, if they offered chicken parm at NASCAR events, I'd go to more. <laughs> just turkey legs and hot dogs at those things. My I've, I've been, been there. I know. I even had. A, I, it was in a box one time at the, at the Charlotte Speedway. <laughs> a lot of fun. All right. Look, this has been a great episode. Thanks, Spencer. We will be back with you next week for episode three of Mangum Talks: The Last of Us. I need a party thoughts for everybody as we as we look ahead to the rest of the season. It, it has been a delight to unpack this with you. I'm enjoying it more than you are, and that is a novel enough thing for us in this show. But it is. Quite a lot of fun to discuss it, to go through both the recap, the moments, the ethical quandaries that we're left with that this kind of show invites. It's a pleasure, man. Yeah, absolutely. Always is, Spencer. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you like this podcast, I can't imagine you got to this point in the podcast. If you haven't enjoyed it, you can go to mangumtalks.com or go to your favorite podcast platform. Type in Mangum Talks, M-A-N-G-U-M Talks. You'll get all of our podcasts. Spencer and I have reviewed an awful lot of television shows. We've done everything from Star Wars to Ted Lasso to Succession to Game of Thrones to House of the Dragon. It goes on and on and on. We've reviewed a lot of really good prestige television. So go into your favorite podcast platform. Type in Mangum Talks. You can catch all our stuff. And in lieu of that, you'll catch us next week as we review episode three of The Last of Us. Everybody have a good week. Thank you.